Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to the Meru Media Podcast. Uh, I am joined today, well, myself and Rachit, uh, Rachit's actually on today too, uh, are joined today by Professor Jeffrey Long, who is a professor of religious studies as, at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. Um, he's also part of the Vedanta Society, uh, Dhanam, which is the, I think, the Dharma Academy of North America, if I'm correct. Um, and he has a, <laughs> to be honest, a, a library of work that he's, he's done over his career. Um, and the, the latest book that we're going to touch upon this time is his edited volume on reincarnation, um, which um, I think is a fantastic book that covers a wide survey of, of both the native Indian views on reincarnation, along with uh, Western responses, and even partially even touching upon scientific uh, areas in which uh, reincarnation plays a role. So, um, Dr. Long, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, Rachit, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, nothing, nothing at all. Uh, okay, so so Dr. Long, before we get into the book that you're, uh, I mean, the, uh, the book on reincarnation, I, I, you did have a piece in there about how you got into Hinduism, how you got into your journey. And I, I know it's probably kind of, uh, you do it on every podcast or every interview on, but it, I think it's such a, a fascinating journey, just n not just because of your background, but to see the worlds apart, like last week we had uh, Ram Das Lamb come on, and he was spending his journey too, which is also incredibly fascinating. And to see how many of us take for granted the things that you guys came through, through you know, either through your Punar Janmagnana uh, or like the samskaras that connect you, or like your just your life experiences. For us, we just take it for granted. Uh, for many of us born in, into the tradition, for you, it, it, it's a process, it's a journey, it's a transformation. And I think it's important to capture how that how that happened. So if, if you would. Sure, sure, I can talk about that. And thank you very much again for inviting me on and uh, just the chance to share with uh, your audience. Uh, so uh, yes, I, uh, I was not born to the Hindu tradition. In fact, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family in a small town in Missouri, and uh, in fact, very much a Bible Belt sort of town. Uh, even being Catholic uh, there was considered a little radical, I think, to some people, because uh, uh, it was a very conservative uh, sort of Protestant perspective was predominant there. And um, I, I grew up in a Catholic family. I, I, was, a, I was a very devout uh, child growing up, uh, but I was also very curious and open-minded. I, I wasn't dogmatic in my worldview, and I I was always very interested in science. I loved reading about astronomy and dinosaurs and uh, very strongly influenced by science fiction. Uh, um, I probably was as influenced by Star Trek and Star Wars as by uh, the Catholic Church in terms of forming my worldview. And uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm a typical American in that way. I think pop culture is really where we get a lot of our uh, values and uh, really the kind of shapes the way we tend to think. Uh, when I was uh, very young, I was 10, uh, and my father was in a really terrible accident, and uh, he was uh, you know, very, very badly injured. Uh, he was in the hospital for several months, then rehabilitation, and then finally back at home, and my mother pretty much gave up uh, any kind of uh, outside work she had. She worked uh, part-time in a bank, but she dedicated herself to taking care of him. And uh, I didn't have any brothers or sisters. It was just me and, and my parents, uh, large extended family, but the nuclear family was just the three of us. And uh, his situation was so bad. Uh, his, his body had really become something like a prison to him because of his injuries. And he ended up taking his own life. And that happened when I was 12. So about an 18-month period of really uh, just kind of an intensive 
suffering and really a complete disruption of, of our lives. Uh, worst, of course, for my father and, and my mother, but for me too. I mean, that, that was you know, my family. And, and uh, so in the aftermath of all of that, I really began thinking a lot about questions like what happens after we die? What, what, is, what kind of afterlife is there? Is there an afterlife? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Uh, and so on. And, of course, a lot of responses, a lot of answers to this uh, can be found in Christian traditions. And uh, yeah. the Catholic Church uh, was my, you know, was, I would say, the cradle, I would say, where my spirituality was formed in this life. And I took a lot of comfort in uh, the idea of a loving God, for example, uh, the idea that there was something other than the body, that it's not just that we die and, and that's it, that you know, the journey continues. Uh, in fact, I perceived that during the period of my father's injury because uh, when your body actually turns against you, you know, if, if your body can be your enemy, that means we are not this body, right? There is something right. distinct between this physical entity and what we think of as the self. And so uh, I took a lot of comfort in those teachings, but I had questions too. And like I said, I was always sort of, you know, open-minded, uh, looking at different theories and ideas. And... Uh, it seemed to me uh, that the traditional idea of heaven and hell that we see in Christianity, uh, I felt that, that that was lacking somewhere. That uh, um, I didn't think my father was in hell because I thought he'd already gone through it. Right? He, he had experienced so right, much suffering right. in this life already. The, the, there are, of course, many, not, not as many people believe this nowadays, but the traditional Christian teaching is people who take their own life go to hell. Well, I didn't believe that. Uh, at the same time, uh, I really was not quite ready to accept the idea that after this one life we just go to heaven because heaven was described as this place of perfection and we're all pretty imperfect. I mean, whatever, you know, I, 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 my view of myself and of others is that people tend to be basically good for the most part, but that we're all, uh, we all have certain insufficiencies, we have certain ignorances and tendencies that cause us to be less than perfect. And uh, much as my father had suffered, I didn't think that he was a perfect being. Now, in the Catholic Church, there's this idea of purgatory, uh, sort of an intermediate state between heaven and hell, where the soul goes and sort of uh, learns certain things and, and, and experiences certain kinds of suffering where the imperfections are kind of burned off and then you're able to go on to perfection. But the question I had about that was if if we're not done yet at the end of this life with that process, what, what was the point of this life? What were we doing here? Why, why don't we just start in purgatory and move on from there? And so then the idea occurred to me, maybe we're already in purgatory. Maybe we just keep coming back here and experiencing things and learning until we reach some kind of perfection. And this was just my thinking coming from within a Christian context, but just trying to rationalize the way I understood things and uh, then um, I started learning about Hinduism, and uh, that happened, again, through popular culture. Uh, two, two big things. Um, one was the Beatles. Uh, I think a lot of uh, Westerners uh, got our first introduction through you know, George Harrison and his journey, and I felt really drawn to uh, his music and what he was saying. And then uh, the movie Gandhi came out uh, when I was uh, 13. So this is like in this aftermath of everything that had happened. So dad died when I was 12, 13. I'm listening to the Beatles. I'm seeing Gandhi. And all these things are coming together. And I'm just thinking, okay, India seems to be this really great source of, of wisdom about these things. And both in George Harrison's songs and then in things I started reading about Gandhi, 
Uh, and then there was this book on Hinduism or really Asian religions generally in science called The Tao of Physics, a pretty That's famous book point. now. And uh, all these sources mentioned the Bhagavad Gita. And I started thinking, well, this Bhagavad Gita sounds like really an amazing book. This, this seems like the source that I need to go back to. And the really neat event that, that happened to me that I see as sort of really pivotal in my life. Uh, so I was 13, turning 14, and I went to this uh, flea market, this sale, in the parking lot of the local Methodist church. And uh, my, I was there to help my grandmother because she would sell things and buy things at these, these markets all the time. But uh, I would also find old uh, comic books and science fiction paperbacks and that sort of thing. So I was on the lookout for, for those. And what I didn't expect was what I found. I went to this card table and had all these old magazines on it. And right on top, here's this book. It says, The Bhagavad Gita, as it is. And it was the uh, translation by Prabhupada, you know, the yeah. founder of ISKCON. And it's beautiful artwork. And I opened it up. And the first page I turned to, there's this... A uh, painting of a man who has died, and he's surrounded by his mourning family. And in the distance, there's this sage who's looking at all of them very serenely, and he can see God in all of them. And you see this little yeah. image of Lord Krishna over everyone's heart. And there's this verse that's quoted at the bottom. It says, "The wise lament neither the living nor the dead." And those words really spoke to me. I just, I, 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 I was really grabbed by this. And it gave a page number, so I turned to the page number, and it's the second chapter of the Gita where Lord Krishna is explaining to Arjuna uh, that uh, there was never a time when we did not exist, nor a time when we will cease to be, yeah. that uh, just as we cast off old and worn out clothing and put on new clothes, so the soul casts off the body and takes on a new body. And it just made perfect sense. And it, it, it spoke to me, and, and it, was, it was as if this thought process that I was already having was being confirmed by something from this very ancient culture from the other side of the world. And uh, I sometimes tell people, in that moment, the way I felt was, uh, it's almost as if you were an extraterrestrial raised by human parents and then came across an artifact from your home planet. Uh, that's how I felt when I found the Gita. You know, it was just wow. it, this, this is the first thing I found that just made complete sense. Right? There, there were things I'd, I, I'd grown up in the church. There were things that I really loved about it, but things that you know, didn't quite make sense to me. And this just, you know, it just all came together so beautifully. And uh, to sort of make a long story short, I mean, that led to a whole lifetime of. Uh, reading and studying about many different traditions, uh, becoming a scholar of religion, but also in my personal life, becoming a practitioner uh, in the Hindu tradition. I uh, was a practitioner uh, of Siddha Yoga for a period of time and really gained a lot from that. But eventually I found my spiritual home in the Ramakrishna tradition. And that's where I've been for you know over 20 years and mm -hmm. uh, formally took Diksha uh, 14 years ago. And, uh, and just this past year, my wife and I have started the Vedanta Society of Central Pennsylvania right here in our house. So uh, that's just, that's in its infancy or even maybe, you know, uh, prenatal stage. It's, uh, it's, it's still very early in its uh, beginnings. But we've already, we've gone from an email list of 12 people to 31 people within the last year. And uh, we have our satsangs every couple months and uh, people come here. And uh, we also, of course, go to the other Vedanta societies. Uh, sure. DC is the closest one to us. Our guru is in Boston. 
Uh, we go there whenever we can. Uh, and I'm also occasionally invited to speak at the Vedanta Societies. Right. In fact, I'll be speaking at the one in New York on June 16th, so coming yeah. up very soon. Excellent. That's my story in a nutshell. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really um, interesting because, I mean, I, growing up in Southern California, there's, you know, Vedanta societies everywhere. Uh, yeah. uh, in, like, San Diego, there's one in Orange County, uh, L.A. So, like, my dad used to take us to the Vedanta Society growing up, too. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, my exposure to Vivekananda and Ramakrishna was later in life in terms of their philosophy or thought. But uh, it was – he did mention them as we're going – because I belong to uh, a specific sampradaya, which is uh, um, Sri Vaishnavism or Vishuddha Dvaita sampradaya. So I grew up in that. I'm not necessarily part of it now, but uh, I, 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 that's kind of like my philosophical background. My epistemology and my metaphysics are really aligned with that. So, um, Rachid, do you have anything to add? Because I, I have a couple of questions I want to follow up. Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess, you know, even I should talk about my sort of exposure to Ramakrishna. So, you know, myself, you know, being from Uttarakhand in Garhwal, right? So I'm from the Himalayas and come from more of a Shakta background. So I found uh, Ramakrishna very uh, fascinating because of his own experiences, right? Yes. He, was, he was a Devi Bhakta, you know, par excellence. And so, uh, you know, it, he's just been so fascinating to me. And, and I mean, also the connection of his personal uh, shaktism versus, you know, Vivekananda and the Vedanta societies, uh, Vedanta, it's also something very interesting to me. And, uh, you know, I guess at some point in this discussion, I'd really love to you know, hear your views about that. Sure, sure. So... I guess my follow-up to, uh, to uh, Dr. Long would be, what? So, how would you differentiate the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Sampradaya, the Vedanta Sampradaya, versus your, the other sampradayas that exist in the Hindu fold? What would what's what's particular about that that makes it uh, its own? Oh, sure, absolutely. Well, I think uh, one of the things that is one of the differentiating marks of this particular sampradaya uh, has to do with Ramakrishna's pluralistic experiences. The fact that he undertook sadhanas within numerous Hindu sampradayas and then even extended his reach into Christianity and Islam to some extent. Uh, I do think the last two sometimes are overstated a bit. I mean he was never baptized for example. I mean I don't think he, I don't think he was a Christian or a Muslim in the sense that most Christians or Muslims would recognize. But he saw divinity in Christ, right? He saw divinity in the God proclaimed in Islam. So he, he, and he wanted to experience divinity in every possible form, and including the formless form, including uh, through Advaita, uh, through his, uh, uh, some, uh, his uh, sadhanas with Totapuri, who was a, an Advaita teacher uh, that came to him uh, at one point in his life. And uh, in each of the traditions <coughs> he undertook a sadhana, he would pursue it wholeheartedly until he achieved uh, the state of samadhi, the state of complete absorption and unification with whatever ishta devata, with whatever form of divinity was at the centerpiece of that sampradaya. So this whole tradition, and I think Swami Vivekananda said it very well, uh, it is Vedanta, it is, it's rooted in the Vedas and specifically in the Upanishads, but it interprets these through the lens of the life of Ramakrishna. So okay. it gives it a particular kind of pluralistic flavor, you could say. So whereas maybe what you might call a classical Advaita Vedanta, uh, and I hope I'm not setting up a straw man in, in, in any sense here, but it's typically understood as affirming the reality of Brahman alone and the unreality of the world, right? Jagad Mitya, right? The world is, is unreal and so on. And you find statements to that effect in, in Ramakrishna's teaching as well. 
At the same time, though, there is, I mean, as Ratchet mentioned, there's this whole Shakta element of Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna affirms that the same Brahman that is the sort of passive foundation or ground of all existence is in its active form the Shakti, who is the Divine Mother, who is present in all beings and present in the world. So what I think differentiates a big part of the, the difference between the Vedanta of Ramakrishna and Vivekananda and what we might call a sort of classical Advaita Vedanta is uh, maybe a little more of an affirmation of the reality of the world and the, <laughs> the validity of experiences like Bhakti, for example. Um, and uh, Ramakrishna quoted Ram Prasad, the uh, famous Bhakta, saying, you know, I want to eat sugar, I don't want to become sugar. Right? And uh, <laughs> so talking about you know, re remaining within the dualistic plane of reality. So I think uh, it's ultimately not so much an ontological difference. I mean, sure. I see in our Vedanta tradition there is this idea that the ultimate reality is the Nirguna Brahman and everything else is in some sense derivative from that. But that rather than affirming that everything else is therefore unreal, it's more mm -hmm. like saying this is, this is a different plane of reality, it's an alternate way of, of looking at existence, and depending on one's personal makeup and one's own spiritual path, one can choose to experience through the modality of dualism or qualified non-dualism or pure non-dualism, and that these are all seen as valid. Uh, in the Ramakrishna tradition. So uh, there's, there's less of a sense that there is one true and final path for everyone and more of a sense that each of us has our own sanskars, we have our own histories that situate us in a particular place in relation to the infinite. And so our means of achieving that realization are going to differ uh, accordingly. And in fact, there's a really, uh, someone I don't know if you've interviewed yet or might consider, uh, he's uh, Swami in training with the Ramakrishna order named uh, Ion Maharaj. And he's just written a book, it just came out last year, called uh, Infinite Paths to Infinite Reality. Mm -hmm. And he's really articulating this extremely well. Like, what, what is the distinctive teaching of, of this Sampradaya? And he uses the term Vijnana Vedanta to define Ramakrishna's uh, Vedanta. Uh, and he traces that term back to the Upanishads. And yep. he really sees it as a kind of a non-sectarian Vedanta. Right? It's, it's you, you know, any perspective you want to present, whether Vishishtadvaita or Advaita or, you know, any, any of these, can be seen within the Ramakrishna perspective as having a, a sphere of validity. Uh, so I think that's really kind of the, the heart of it. Okay. Uh, Rajit? Oh, no, no uh, nothing at all. Because, I mean, I was about to say, in some sense, it feels much like uh, a, 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 I would say normal Sampradaya broken free of its traditional restrictions, in some sense, right? In, in terms of conceptions of, uh, of how to interact with other groups of, of thought. The, uh, people, I mean, like, like Islam, Christianity, or whatever, it kind of falls under the purview, then, of the same universal vision, um, as opposed to something that requires only a Vedika path or something of that nature, right? Because, I mean, like, for example, Shankara, uh, Shankara's big, uh, in his Kevala Dvita, his big thing would be, like, only Dvijas can be, can get moksha because they have to learn the Upanishads, and the only person that can get the Upanishad access would be Dvijas. Well, right. in Ramakrishna's, it's clear that the experiential nature of, of, that, of that intuitive knowledge is more powerful than anything you get from, like, a text or anything. That's right. And, and uh, in fact, Swami Vivekananda makes this very explicit, and he, he's quite critical of traditional concepts of adhikara. He, he, he really sees this as uh, 
unduly restricting the spiritual. He said, you know, you can't contain the infinite in any container. Right. So uh, just, uh, I mean, what, what, one of the things that drew me to it was its rejection of the kinds of fundamentalisms and exclusivisms you see in Christianity, which is what I grew up with. Right. Uh, but you could see that from, from an internal Hindu perspective as well as being critical of things like caste restrictions or sure. uh, even the insistence on one particular devata as, you know, the true devata. And uh, so these, these sorts of restrictions really, uh, th this tradition goes against the grain of, of that type of thinking. So does the tradition also require vegetarianism, non-alcohol, non-tobacco, those, those kind of traditional, uh, 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 you know, what's, what's it called, the devashas or whatever? It does, but it's much more, I don't want to say relaxed, uh, because that, that would sort of give the wrong impression. But <laughs> it starts with people where they are. Okay. So it doesn't insist from the very beginning that one observe such restrictions. Uh, what I've learned in the tradition, and in fact, I, I can even say this experientially, uh, just from, from my short lifetime so far of practice, that once one begins the practice, uh, some, of the some of what are traditionally thought of as restrictions just become your natural mode of being. Okay. And you just you simply become repelled by something like alcohol because you know that it doesn't create within you the the kind of uh, awareness and the kind of inner sense that's conducive to what you what you want to achieve. You know, it, sure. it militates against your meditation practice, and that's the most important thing in your life. So you're like, no, I don't want to do that. So it, it's less of a uh, sense of restrictions, like you are not allowed to do this, and more of a sense of well, these are the values. These are what you're trying to achieve. And you find through experience that uh, certain kinds of activities, certain kinds of behaviors just aren't compatible uh, with that. And uh, there's a famous story from the life of Ramakrishna, in fact, about this. One of his disciples, a man named Girish Ghosh, uh, was a playwright and uh, quite a bohemian in his lifestyle and a uh, big drinker. And uh, one of the things he, you know, Ramakrishna was always encouraging him to, you know, give up alcohol. And, and uh, uh, he said, oh, you know, I, I, this is one thing I can't do. This is part of my life. So Ramakrishna said something very interesting thing to, to him. He said, okay, he said, next time you drink, before you drink, offer it up to the Divine Mother. Make it into prasad. Right? So whenever you have a drink, first offer it to the Divine Mother. Now, from an orthodox perspective, that's very inappropriate, right? You know, offering right. alcohol to, you know, as prasad, that, that doesn't seem right. But Ghosh started following this advice, and within a few weeks, he completely lost his desire for alcohol. And it just just stopped and uh, didn't go back uh, to his, his old uh, alcoholic habits. So uh, the, the attitude of the tradition is that... You know, what we often think of as these sorts of, of restrictions, it's the way that an awakened soul would just normally behave. Right? The, the spontaneous, normal behavior of someone who is tuned into divinity is such that you know, it avoids violence, it avoids certain kinds of uh, substances that aren't good for the mind, aren't good for sure. the body. And so cultivating uh, that, uh, that desire for the realization of divinity is going to simply make certain things unattractive. So uh, while there are definitely moral expectations uh, in the tradition, I find it's not something that's <coughs> talked about extensively. It's more people will ask the swamis, they'll ask their guru, they'll say, "What should I do about this?" And generally, the advice is, you know, well, 
this is the ideal. This is what mm -hmm. you should be doing and not doing. But where are you now? And now let's work toward getting you there. Because very often I find that people who may be already, especially us Westerners, right? We, we come from this culture where it's like a lot of the things that are taken for granted are very bad habits from a traditional spiritual point of view. Sure. And if you try to put all of that away immediately, it's going to become very difficult to practice. Now, some people can do it. Uh, but I compare it sometimes to people who come up with a really elaborate exercise and diet regimen for their health, and maybe it's a New Year's resolution. Okay, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. every day, and I'm going to do 100 push-ups, and I'm going to jog 10 miles. And you know, by January 3rd, you've you've given up, and you're back to your old habits because it's just too hard. But you know, like little bit every day, little bit of you know the the whole baby steps philosophy. Yeah. I think that's really, that's what I've experienced more as the approach of the tradition. One qualification I'll add to that is I think this is the way we practice it in the West because I think Swami Vivekananda came to America with the understanding that, you know, these Westerners, they're already caught up in this very materialistic way of life. We're going to have to gradually get them on board with, you know, the right way of living. Uh, I, my understanding is things are a bit more strict in India. Like if you go to a Ramakrishna Mission School, for example, I mean, it's going to be pretty strict right from the beginning. And uh, the idea is, I think, that you know, Indians have grown up with this uh, culture. Right. I think that difference might be breaking down, though. I don't know if there's as much difference between, say, an urbanized Indian nowadays and a Westerner in terms of personal habits. You know, that things have changed so much in India. No, yeah, I mean, oh, go ahead, Rajat. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely, Professor Long. You know, and I'll talk about my experience. I mean, I'm being one of those urbanized Indians, you know, almost like a brown sahib growing up, right? Went to one of those colonial uh, schools. Wow. Uh, and my interaction with Indian culture was there through my family. You know, we're going out, we used to go up to the mountains to the traditional village where my family is from and, you know, the towns up there. But at the same time, most of my time was spent around a people who, uh, you know, was growing up studying English literature, uh, being able to speak and read and write in English uh, in a very sophisticated sophisticated manner was something that was considered a good goal in life. And, right. and so, a, I mean, there was a falling away from the culture and my rediscovery of my culture after coming to the U.S. for, uh, for my undergraduate studies actually uh, involved an experience of very similar to yours. I mean, I was exposed to books by uh, uh, Yogananda, Vivekananda, you know, reading about the life of Ramakrishna. And then slowly there was going back towards more traditional uh, Hinduism. But you're right. I mean, those barriers have uh, definitely fallen apart. And I also say this, you know, coming from uh, Uttarakhand, our dietary habits are also very different from the rest of the country. You know, in, in the mountains, whether it's Nepal or where I'm from, even Kashmir, you know, meat eating is common, you know, alcohol drink is also very common. So right. even the interactions with Indians from different parts of the country was very interesting because, you know, what was considered okay achara up there, you know, is, is somehow not okay in, you know, UP or with people from southern India. So uh, that whole experience for me also has, has been, you know, I guess very similar to yours. <laughs> oh, that's true. And, and Bengal, of course, uh, is very big on fish eating. And uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, my wife is Bengali uh, by background and, you know, fish is just a big part of the diet. And it, it's, it's even used in metaphors. Uh, Ramakrishna would use fishing-related metaphors very often in his teaching. Uh, one expression that he used a lot uh, when, he would, he, when he would teach someone something, and if they found that there were aspects of it that were difficult to accept, but you know, he wanted them to get the essence of it and not get too hung up on those details, he, he would say, uh, leave the head and the tail. Um, <laughs> so, and, and, and so, so the image is if someone's eating fish and it's like, well, 
I don't know about this head and tail. It's like, well, okay, don't worry about that part, but you know, get the get the middle part. And yeah. so, uh, so that that I think those those variations in Indian culture are also a a, a big thing that we see. Right. So, how much do you think, uh, for example, like so, Ramakrishna's background, obviously, he's Bengali, um, and and so is Vivekananda. So, Shaktism is is pretty big in the Bengal region. So, what? Do you have indication how he picked uh, a particular form of Devi and why he chose that and, 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 and kind of what his practice was when he was engaging in that? On a purely historical level, um, what it, it just seems to have been almost an accident of history that uh, his family were Ram devotees. Uh, okay. and in fact, uh, all, of the, like, all the family's names were in some way derivative of Ram or, or Vishnu. In fact, his given name was Gadadhar, so the bearer of the mace, uh, Gadadhar Chattopadhyay. So uh, they were Ram devotees, and his older brother, they were very poor, uh, his older brother, uh, they were Brahmins, uh, he got a job uh, as, uh, as one of the priests at this Kali temple in Dakshineshwar, which is sort of north of Calcutta, and uh, now the urban sprawl of Calcutta has encompassed it, but it was uh, north of Calcutta, and uh, it was a Kali temple, and it was actually constructed by and owned by a woman whose for her caste background was a Shudra, uh, named Rani Rashmani. Um, and this is something I think good for some listeners to know, that what is sometimes called caste in the Western world is not the same as class. And though this woman came from what's called the servant or Shudra caste, she was marvelously uh, wealthy, and she lived in a house that was palatial, and you can see photographs of it from that period, and she built this temple, and uh, um, some of the more, I guess you could say, orthodox Brahmins were not comfortable serving in a temple owned by a low-caste woman, but when you're poor, you're poor, and you need the work, and so Ramakrishna's brother took the job there, and then Ramakrishna went with him as sort of his apprentice, and when he was only about 19, his brother died suddenly. And uh, just got Ill, took took ill and, and died uh, unexpectedly. So then Ramakrishna had to take over uh, his brother's priestly duties, and it said that he underwent I wouldn't call it a crisis of faith, but he actually had a lot of integrity. He he said to himself, if I'm going to worship this goddess, if I'm going to spend every day in this ritualistic worship, I need to know that she's real. I need to see her. I need to experience her. So he began, this is the first of his uh, many famous sadhanas, was just crying out in longing to Makali, I want to see you, I want to see you. It almost reminds me of the George Harrison song, you know, My Sweet Lord, I really want to see you, really <laughs> want to be. And uh, each day that would pass when he would not have the vision of the Divine Mother, he'd, he'd go to bed weeping. He would say, oh Ma, another day has passed and I have not seen you. And then finally, uh, he reached the point where he was about to take his own life uh, in desperation. Right? He was just full of this desperation to see the Divine Mother. And uh, there was a sword hanging on the wall in the temple, and he was going to go and take it and, and cut his own throat. And then at that moment, he was overwhelmed by this vision of, of o an ocean of light. Mm -hmm. And it overwhelmed him. It, it, it encompassed him fully. And he realized that this was the Divine Mother in her true form. And he had this experience and he entered into this very deeply God-intoxicated state, which he remained in for days after. And 
he began to behave like some of the, sort of the classic uh, mad bhaktas uh, because he could see the Divine Mother everywhere. So he fed the prasad to a cat, for example, and people were outraged. And he said, well, Ma's in the cat as well as in the murti, so why shouldn't I feed her? And, uh, and so this was the beginning of his uh, journey because then after that he undertook a series of, like we said before, of sadhanas of various kinds, Vaishnava, Shaiva, and so on. Uh, however, his default was always Makali. He always went back to her because I think that was his first really profound spiritual experience. There, there are stories of him going into spontaneous samadhi even in his childhood, uh -huh. but uh, and these would be evoked by sometimes just by natural beauty. He once saw some geese flying in the sky, and uh, there were storm clouds overhead, and just the contrast of the white geese and the gray clouds was so beautiful that it sent him into this altered state. And uh, once when he was a child, he was in a, a play uh, about the gods, and he was dressed up like Lord Shiva, and he got up onto the stage, and he went into, he became Shiva, he went into Samadhi. Uh, but in terms of like following a sadhana and then having Samadhi as its outcome, uh, his first experience was at this Makali temple. So from a historical perspective, you could just say it's an accident of history. His older brother happened to get hired at this place, uh, and then died and then left him to take over these duties and that left him with his very peculiar spiritual character saying well I can only serve a goddess that I really have seen and, and believe is right. real and so that's really where Makali became the centerpiece of his devotion and his last word when he left his body is he called out the name of Kali uh, three times before he passed away so he died with her name on his lips and so uh, this this was his Ishtadevata, his symbol of complete devotion. And uh, now there, what I keep saying from a historical perspective, it may be that there's some deeper metaphysical reason why Ramakrishna came as the as the Makali Bhak that that he is. Because uh, I, I think, especially for Westerners, uh, Makali is one of the most challenging Hindu deities to yeah. grab. Because uh, uh, from a conventional perspective, she looks pretty scary, right? She's, you know, and then, of course, you have the whole Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom type of uh, imagery out there and, and uh, so on. And the fact that uh, not at Dakshineshwar, but at the Kali Ghat, that you know, very famous or infamous Kali Temple in Calcutta, they, they still sacrifice goats to the present day. So right. a lot of people associate her with, you know, with blood and violence and so on. And I think Ramakrishna's devotion to her challenges us to really see God everywhere not only right. in forms that we find benevolent or appealing, but you know, even in this fearsome form, there is divinity present. So I, I see a deeper reason why, why Kali. Uh, but uh, historically, yeah, just that's where he ended up. Yeah. Uh, Rajat? Uh, uh, nothing really to add over here, Professor Long. I, I think you really hit upon this really, really well. Thank you. So, so I have, it's interesting, I got two points, right? Like, you're totally correct about the inability for a lot of the Western world, um, and, and probably actually not just the Western world, a lot of even Indians themselves to not understand Kali fully, right. right? Like it, it, it's it's she's seen as this, this fearsome deity that's in the back that you be scared of. I mean, for example, Jordan Peterson came out with like this, uh, I think like a, a like a forty-five minute lecture on Kali, which was I think totally just bupkis. It was just made up from like this Jungian perspective, and 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 did it make sense with the tradition? Right, the tradition has a very beautiful sense of what Kali represents, right? Because it, it's, Kali in some sense is a standalone deity, but also connected to Durga and, and Shakti on the whole, right? Just like every single 
person has many facets. Mother has so many different facets, right? Like, especially when she's like trying to protect her, her, her devotees or her children, she behaves fearsome like Hollywood, right? And so, it's a way to cut down, like, for example, your desires because they're, I mean, Ratchet's actually better to maybe talk about this, but the, her, her killing Raktabija and, yeah. and drinking the blood, which that, that depiction comes from, is, is such a, a psychologically important concept of our desires rising up incessantly. And only with like this viciousness are you able to get rid of them and you have to kind of absorb them into you. I mean, yeah. Ratchet, do you have anything to say about particularly this story? I mean, you know, this this would be a whole nother conversation. I could go on and you know for days about it, but I mean, it, it is you know for most people, you know, Kali is this this fearsome deity, you know, which is kind of hidden away, and you know, coming from a uh, from a culture where where Durga, you know, Chandi, Chamunda, they're part of our daily lives. You know, my whole experience growing up was was very different, and and so you know, it's and and, uh, and Kali really is more of a benevolent deity to us. I mean, she right. is fearsome to us because of the clashes and bicaras inside us. And right. that's the whole point over there. You know, she takes no prisoners. She's like, I'm gonna chop, you know, off the root of your ego right away. You know, it's not the Samya form of the Devi, the Mahadevi, because she's everything, right? She's all of existence. It's uh, you know, that would be Shri, but you've got the, the Kalikula as well saying that hey, you know what, there's the other side of the coin. And for us to come to terms with reality as a whole, you know, we have to be able to engage and face up to the ultimate reality in its uh, in its in its Radra form. You know, just like with the Vishvarupam of, uh, of uh, Vishnu, right? When Krishna shows it, Arjuna, it's, it's something that Arjuna can handle. So, uh, yep, that's... Uh, I mean, Kali herself is called Badra Kali, right? The gentle Kali, right? Yeah. So that's a... It's just like, even though you see the fearsome form and in in her heart to her devotees, she, she's gentle, she's so <laughs> she's loving, right? It's, it's a very, like... And this is, I think, one of the beauty of, of, of the tradition we have is, at least Hindus, in the sense is, you can find that beauty, you can find that gentleness in all things and that perfection in all things. Whether or not it appears scary or appears uh, not scary, it's there's this perfection that, that kind of cuts through everything in whatever form you kind of approach God or baby or whatever you want to call, right? Right. No, I, I think you've put that very beautifully. And I think the protective aspect is, is a really important one, at least when, when I, as I've come to understand it, and, and as I've explained it to a lot of my students who are mostly mm -hmm. from a Western background, say, you know, uh, think, of how, think of how angry and frightening your, your mother becomes if she thinks you're threatened in some way, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, they're going to be terrifying. And, uh, and, and I just came back from Japan, and Every Buddhist temple has these fearsome guardian deities, right? These Dharma guardians, and they're they're glowering, and they have weapons, and you know, again, from a sort of Western perspective, they might appear demonic, but they're there to drive away the evil, and and as you said, drive away our own evil. You mentioned our our kleshas, our imperfections. Uh, I always think of the head, the severed head of the Raktabija that Makali is holding right. as representative of the ego, you know, yeah. and. Uh, you know, when we have this expression in English, you know, having things go to your head or getting big-headed, you know, <laughs> and she just cuts it right off, and uh, that is that is her role. And uh, I I have found that her to be very empowering and life-giving uh, image of divinity. But yes, for many Westerners, uh, that that's that's a hard thing to come to terms with because right. we're very often presented with uh, you know, oh, well, God is love, God is loving, God is benevolent. Now. Kali is also loving and benevolent, but this is a way that this is manifested. And, uh, and of course, the Western tradition is not without its fierce side of God. You know, the, right. uh, uh, the, the 
the, the Old Testament sort of, you know, wrathful God. And in fact, in some ways, getting to know Makali has helped me understand that tradition better, too. Uh, because a lot of Westerners grew up sort of repelled by that image of God. And, right. and, and it is repelling if it translates into, well, we should therefore also go out and, you know, slay the unbelievers, you know, all that, that sort of thing is, you know, uh, all unacceptable. Uh, but looking at it as, you know, yes, there is this dimension of reality that is, that is fierce and, and that is frightening and that is part of the totality of the infinite that we're trying to realize. Absolutely. So I have a maybe, I mean, it's not a controversial question, but it might be. Um, so there's been a, a recent slate in the past like few years of people writing about Ramakrishna in, especially from like the, the scholar perspective. Um, I think it was, I forget, it was, it was Paul Cartwright or Jeffrey Kripal, I forget which one Paul, wrote yep, the book. Paul, right. yeah, Paul. Yeah. So it, it, I, I haven't, uh, to be honest, I haven't had the opportunity to read them. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do know of people, of many Hindus and especially people within the Ramakrishna tradition have been quite upset about how it's how it's been uh, how he's been presented. Now, right. for you, it's it's I imagine it's like this dichotomy because you are a practitioner, but you're also a scholar. So you you come to the table with with both these things running through your head. How can you talk a little bit about that particular issue and how you kind of dealt with that on both sides? If if that's something you're open to. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think that there it is a complex issue. Um, because I actually know uh, Jeff Kripal, so you know I I would not attribute any uh, malicious intent to him. He's a scholar pursuing his understanding of this material. Um, now all of us, and this is how the academy works. We're all all of our work is susceptible to critique, and so there are scholarly critiques of his work that don't actually depend on. An, at a kind of insider-outsider dichotomy. And uh, there are uh, two people that are actually very close to in the Ramakrishna tradition, Swami Tyagananda and Pravajika Vrajaprana, uh, wrote their own book in response to the Kali's Child book. Uh, it's uh, not been, I think, as well promoted, but it's called uh, Interpreting Ramakrishna. And uh, it is uh, you know, they've great depth about... Uh, for, for one thing, uh, just, you know, the way Bengali words are read. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you look at a dictionary, and I'm, I'm less conversant with Bangla than I should be, but uh, Sanskrit is something I'm, I'm much more conversant with. But, you know, if you take a Sanskrit word, you know, take, let's say dharma, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. If, if you look up Monier Williams Sanskrit Dictionary, well, you're going to find dozens of definitions of dharma. <laughs> so each of those is correct in some context or another. But someone who's really proficient with that language will tell you in a given context which of those meanings is really appropriate. And so a lot of the readings of the original source material that you found in, in Kripal's work, uh, ordinary Bengalis who've been reading that same material for a century or more, uh, take exception to the way it's been interpreted. They don't read those words that way. Now those meanings are possible interpretations. Uh, but uh, they're not what a sort of you know like a reader of of the plain text uh, would right. would come away with, and uh, I think the other reason, of course, that it's controversial is anything connected with sexuality is controversial, and sure. so uh, Kripal's reading is is very charged with uh, with sexuality, and and he would say, well, it's there in the original source material, and uh, we had a really good conversation about this once uh, in person, and. I said to him, uh, you know, uh, 
what you present is that there is this this meaning that this uh, this deep truth about sexuality in the teaching of Ramakrishna that the world has not seen, um, and uh, he takes he's particularly critical of Swami Nikilananda's English rendering of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna uh, as sort of watering these things down and so on. And uh, I said, uh, but you know, and like I just said, I said there have been Bengalis reading this material for over a century, and why haven't they seen? What, what you see, what you yeah. see. Yeah. yeah, and he says, and, and he said correctly. He said uh, it depends upon your hermeneutical lens, right? Your interpretive. You know, you need this sort of interpretive tool uh, in order to read it. And then here's the comment that I found very helpful and very revealing. He said, "It's just like all the homoerotic imagery in the Gospels." Now, having grown up Catholic, which Christ mm -hmm. who did, my first thought, and I bit my tongue. I didn't say it, but my first thought was. What homoerotic imagery in the book, right? And uh, and then of course, if, and if if you look into it, you become aware that yeah, there there is a whole interpretation of the Gospels that gets into certain things that are said that can be read, you know, uh, with that particular uh, interpretation in mind. And when you're hearing it read in church, that's not the hermeneutical lens. That's not the right. you know, That's not the virtual reality helmet that you're wearing at that moment. You're you're there as a devotee, and you're you're hearing something else. So. People in the Ramakrishna tradition have told me, and I think this is my view as well, that, and I don't think this is true of everyone, I think there are people who would have just reflexively hated his book no matter what, right. but there are people who've said, if he had emphasized, this is my interpretation, right. this is how I am reading this with this particular set of assumptions, that there would be far less objection to sure. the right. and, uh he does say that, but I I think there are all other places where you know he's he sounds pretty firm that he's you know describing a historical fact, and so then it becomes very very uh, contentious right? because you're saying it is this way, it's not this way. Whereas if we think in terms of you know different kinds of readings, um, I think we're on much safer ground. Uh, right. So yeah, it I, I what what it what it taught me as a at that time young scholar was that when we give an interpretation of something that is different from how the community understands it, we have to be super sensitive about that. Sure. And it doesn't mean that we have to censor ourselves or, you know, this is people say, well, freedom of speech and so on. Yeah, I absolutely believe in freedom of speech and freedom of scholarship. At the same time, you don't want your work to be misunderstood. And right. if, unless you really are trying to offend Hindus and you really have something against the community, why, why do that, right? Uh, present it in a way that is, you know, like uh, I understand that this is the tradition, and I think it's important to show that you understand the traditional way that texts right. are read before offering something novel, because uh, a lot of Hindus might just think that you're incompetent. You know, it's like, right. well, he thinks this book's about this, but we all know that it's about something else. And so uh, it it really taught me to tread carefully in terms of. Uh, the kinds of interpretations. Uh, that I'm also not myself all that drawn to Freudian interpretation, so it's not right. an issue for. I'm interested in philosophy. I'm interested in like you know, uh, is is all of this really true or not? Is what I'm right. more interested in. So uh, I don't. I've I've never gotten into any of the, these kinds of issues, but a lot of scholars have, and uh, right. I, I think it it really just it it emphasize. I mean, it underscores our responsibility to both to our scholarly vision of how we want to interpret something, but also to the community whose texts and 
practices we're, we're reading. And I really understand. I mean, you can look at it from a post-colonial perspective as well. Um, a lot of Indian Hindus, I think, are very rightly upset that, you know, who does this white guy think he is to psychoanalyze us and talk about our family dynamics and so on? He doesn't know us. He hasn't been in our home. You know, uh, I know people who've critiqued Kripal's work from a psychoanalytic perspective, too, that, you know, you, you can't really psychoanalyze someone who lived 100 years ago through in a, a different culture. In different <laughs> culture. Uh, and through a text that is not in your first language. I mean, it's just, right. you know, uh, uh, I remember uh, there was that famous case of Terry Schiavo who was uh, in a vegetative state, and yeah. uh, there was a senator with a medical degree, and he, um, it was, I think, a political stunt, but he diagnosed her based on a video and was just criticized by everyone. Like, you know, you don't, you don't diagnose your patient by video, much less yeah. through 100-year-old through text in a different language. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a couple of comments, right? I, I think you're you're right on point and, and totally right about the her hermeneutical lens that ones wear. I mean, one wears when you look at any tradition or any culture, community, or, or, or text, right? Like, for example, like I can, like in India, the relationship between friends, males, is very different, right? Like they hold, walk around holding hands and they, they behave in a way that I think in the West, when they look at it, they be like, oh, there's some homoerotic or there's some homosexual tendencies going on. But if you're not able to understand relationships within a certain community and a culture and civilization, then these lenses that you wear give you a wrong perspective as to those relationships, right? Absolutely. So, so I think that's my first thing is sometimes the difficulty is when scholars and everyone, not just scholars, we all come to the table with our own, our own mindsets, our own like. I mean, as we get into later on about reincarnation, well, our old masanas and and you know and some scholars, all this stuff that's connected in our in our brains, that's already preset. Pre we're not a we're not a tabula rasa. So we right. come there, we come, we engage with whatever we do, and we bring those things to bear. And sometimes that reflects on what your, not necessarily what you are, but the way you're approaching these these situations. So I the think the noun is usually defined as to strike sorry. or push with the head or horns. Sorry, that was the noun is usually defined Alexa as off. a push or blow with the head or horns. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I, I apologize. I should have turned it off. Uh, but yes, yeah. uh, it was I'm going to turn it off. Uh, it was more about um, the fact that when you engage with communities and people, you have to like you said put the put the I guess the tagline this is my interpretation, but a lot of times what I've also noticed is scholars and historians will take that maybe and over time make it a fact right oh it's possible this is the case but as you read more and more of the book they refer to that possibility as being like a a, a a true premise or a true conclusion to jump onto the other points and my last point would be like is there a tendency within academia or scholars because you know the the, the publisher parish paradigm that you have to kind of produce something of of controversy or some big big splash for you to have any impact in the industry. I think there's some truth to that, uh, definitely. I mean, the, the, to the to the earlier point you were making about how you know premises and and you know suggestions of possible interpretations over the course of a of a book become very solidified. I think that's also true, and and you, I think that's a fair description of of Kripal's book on on Ramakrishna. Um, <clears throat> In terms of yeah, the publisher parish, and, yeah, you need to say something original, and yeah, controversy sells books. It 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 attracts people, and, and it 
it shows that you're a very edgy, open-minded, you know, uh, cutting-edge kind of scholar. You know, you're on top of things. And, uh, you know, people want to write things that sound exciting. They don't want to write something that sounds pedantic or overly technical and so on. So, uh, you know, and, and I, I think all of the, these pressures are, are there. And uh, I also think it's just a question of, like, how, like you said, the sanskaras people bring to their work. Uh, I'm very open about the fact that I came to this discipline as a spiritual practitioner. Uh, yeah. My goal is, you know, going back to the tradition of my birth uh, is a faith-seeking <coughs> to to quote Saint Anselm, right? It's it's yeah. it's you know trying to understand these things uh, as someone who's living a, a particular way of life, and uh, that's not why everyone comes to this uh, and profession. And in fact, some people come with a very strong political agenda. Sure. Uh, they may have had very negative experience with religion in the Western world. And they see problems happening in India and various other parts of the world. So they're on sort of a mission to debunk religion or to show how it's all implicated with power and with politics and, and so on. And uh, I don't think that's a completely invalid perspective uh, at all. But it becomes the central driving uh, factor in the hermeneutic that they use. And so uh, they might be looking at a particular text with that hermeneutic, and a practitioner may look at the same text and say, this is unrecognizable to me, right? This is just not, <laughs> not how I read the Bhagavad Gita, right? I just don't see that. And, and I, think, uh, I think all these perspectives can enrich one another. Sure. Uh, I find that uh, I really like especially the work of scholars of Hinduism who have a lot of, even if they're not practitioners, they have a lot of ground experience. They do a lot of anthropology. They've lived in India. They've lived amongst the people. Ram Das Land. Ram I mean, Das wow. is a great. <laughs> he's he kind of takes it to the to the apex, you know. Um, but um, another field where I've I've written a bit is on Jainism, and uh, you have someone like John Court, you know, who's not a practitioner, but he spent years and years in Gujarat and you know, knows Gujarati and Hindi and you know extremely well, uh, you know, like a native speaker. And you know, so people who've immersed themselves, I think, then have the sort of sensitivity that I'm talking about yeah. because they're not writing about sort of imaginary people living on the other side of the world. They're writing about people they know. And uh, so you're going to, uh, even while you're bringing your critical perspective and your particular interpretive lens to the material, uh, you're going to do it in a way that's not going to, uh, you know, you can't really control how people react to your work, but it's not going to very obviously inflame, you know, someone uh, the way you write it. And sure, sure. Uh, I know, uh, like, an, an, one of my teachers, and uh, he was the she was the advisor to Jeff Kripal, Wendy Doniger, you know, very yeah. famous or notorious in, in Hindu circles. I once heard her say that uh, uh, she was asked at a big public forum at the American Academy of Religion, is there anything you would write or do differently in light of all the controversy that you've experienced. And she said that, particularly in her earlier work, if she had if she'd been really conscious that practicing devout Hindus would be reading this material, she would have written in a different tone, right? She would have right. written in a different way. And I think that's I, I think we also write with an imaginary audience in our heads. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and and if and if that audience is only made up of one's fellow scholars or one's dissertation committee, something different comes out than if one is communicating with a religious community uh, that one's writing about. So I think that, again, it's, it's all about not, not censoring oneself, but being sensitive um, and saying, you know, when it is your perspective, saying this is my perspective, this is why I hold this perspective, 
but it's not the only perspective. And I understand that it's going to be different from what the community uh, sure. has. And, you know, this another point, too, I think if we look back at, uh, I think a really good model to follow is the one, the traditional one, where the Sampradayas debate with one another uh, because everyone's assumptions are right out front. And uh, um, it's, it's, it's done with an understanding that you're, you're trying to advance truth. You're not trying to undercut anyone or anything it's 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 uh, or even to sell books but that you're you're doing it to you're doing it in the name of truth and uh, I think this kind of ethos can really be helpful in the academy too it's like well here's you know I'm someone's from the the Marxist Sampradaya someone's from the Freudian Sampradaya so they're going to write in a certain way yeah. and uh, if we're you know if, if we acknowledge that it, it, rather than try to universalize it I think we're in much better so shape it's interesting you bring this up because uh, I, I think so. The, the I guess a new term they use now is steel manning someone's argument, right? So the right. the concept of instead of straw manning, you steel man. So I, I feel like the idea of purupaksha itself is inherently about giving your opponent's argument the best way they can give it, right? Yes. And then and then responding to the best version of their own arguments. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that tradition shows a level of. Even though the, the 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 polemics between the groups were were heated and fiery and and crazy and but the way when you engage in a philosophical dialogue is they would they would engage treating their opponent as a, a worthy adversary instead yes. of and I think bringing that to our table in the way we talk and engage with each other is a very I think a very helpful thing especially in this cold objective academic world that we're that that I mean partially you live in and I, I tend to read it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. No, I, I think you're right about that. I like this idea of steel manning as opposed to straw manning because this is how I teach critical thinking to my students. You know, uh, I'm going to be teaching a philosophy of religion course this fall and I've been working on the design right now and one thing I want the students to do and I'm going to be very clear about is you know okay take a position on this question and then I want you to come up with the best possible argument you can against your own position. And then come up with the best possible reply you can to that argument. And uh, right. basically replicating the Purvapaksha uh, method. And uh, I think this also comes from uh, using this method means you have a lot of confidence in your particular perspective. right? Absolutely. When people are very insecure, when they don't really know why they believe what they believe, then they want to shut down conversation. Oh, I don't sure. want to talk about that. You know, we're, we're, oh, silence those non-believers, right? Uh, whereas if you really, you know, if you're really convinced that Shankara had it right, or yeah. Anuja had it right, uh, or Ramakrishna had it right, then you can charge into battle. You know, metaphorically speaking, uh, fearlessly, and uh, and say, yeah, let me let me take on all these questions. Let me look at all these objections. And yeah. ultimately, I think you get a deepened understanding of your own perspective. Uh, it, it enriches your your uh, own worldview. Yeah. Hey, Rajit, uh, sorry, I, I, I might have cut you off a few times. No, no, uh, I mean, not at all. I think this is a very interesting discussion. And I think you both have hit upon really important points. And especially Professor Long, you know, talking about the idea, yes, the academic freedom and freedom of expression is very important, but we have to bring a certain sensitivity to the table. Because if we don't, if both sides get hard-headed, we're going to lose out on great opportunities for discussion and growth on either side. You know, yes. 
serious people like Mukund and myself who are practitioners but are also want to have that, you know, a certain level of intellectual balance, want to be able to have these conversations with people who have different point of views from us. But, you know, I mean, unfortunately, the situation, you know, recent years became such where, you know, both sides kind of doubled down on their point of view. And it's, it's going to lead to a landscape where there's going to be poor scholarship or less scholarship. And I don't think any one of us want that. So I, I think it's very important. And I think this is one of the things that's inspired Mukund and myself to do this whole initiative, Mero Media, is you know, have more of these conversations with people like yourself, bring these views out there, and eventually, you know, in, in, I mean, instead of having the scholars sort of being more and more cut off in the ivory tower, actually bringing them more in touch with reality because if more people consume this research, it's actually going to end up leading to more funding for this type of work, honestly. That's true. It would be a, a, a much more <laughs> vibrant community that is producing objective scholarship and at the same time enriching people's experiences of either their own tradition or allowing outsiders to understand, say, what Hindus believe about themselves. You know, that's why I like what you said about, you know, folks who've done on the ground work from an anthropological perspective. That's so important to bring in because if it's a purely textual reading, I, I don't know any such textual Hindu. I've met the biggest Panditas ever and their own experiences, the way they live their lives and the tradition is very different from the texts that they might be following and might have memorized and that have been passed down for a thousand years. So that experiential element is, is just a very, very important. Absolutely. No, I, I, I think you're, you're completely right about that. And, and, and you're right about how, uh, you know, the current trend where we're all in our bubbles and you see that in popular discourse too. You know, it it impoverishes everybody. You know, when you're just talking to other people who agree with you, you're really missing out on all kinds of perspectives. And and this is why Ramakrishna, I think, practiced in many different sampradayas and, and followed different sadhanas because he wanted to experience the infinite in as many ways as in many modalities as it could be. And I think with knowledge, it's the same way. If we want to expand our knowledge base, if we want to truly get a deep understanding of reality, we need to dive deep into particular thinkers and particular traditions, but we also need to be expansive and talk to people who have different perspectives. And you know, we're way too tribalized and, I don't know, bu bubble-fied. I don't know what word they use for that. But, you know, everyone's in their own bubble. And uh, it's, it's echo chambers, and it's very unfortunate. Yeah, you know, it's uh, so one of the things I, I, I like doing is I like going to churches or mosques and, and kind of engaging with the spiritual practice that's there because I think it's like like Ramakrishna, I didn't, obviously not doing it the depth that Ramakrishna did his sadhana with all these, is just touching upon the different ways that the infinite expresses itself through infinite like connections right and that's really like nature just going out and sitting in nature is another expression or or even like even in, in, as as tough as it is like seeing the happiness within poverty or seeing like the, the struggles and helping people with their struggles that's another way the infinite expresses themselves in and i think it's the thing that we in this political discourse in this world today that we've kind of become is very ossified in our corners that we're not willing to see the expression of each other in, yeah. in in ourselves, right? Like in America, this 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 movement towards like the radical left versus radical right versus no one's talking at each. They're no one's talking with each other. They're talking talking at each other, and they're not understanding that we all are trying to deal with the same problems in this world. Like by by fighting with each other, we're not going to solve it. Right? We yeah. have to have a dialogue, and it's okay if we have different perspectives, just in, as we do in between. Like well, I think there's a saying like you know if you ask. Uh, a Hindu an opinion, you'll get like something like four different versions of it, right. or right. something like right. that, right? right. It's 
that the diversity of thought and engaging with each other is more important than being right, I think. Exactly. And, and we don't want to lose that. And, and we, all, we all draw closer to truth, I think, through this kind of process. And Swami Vivekananda is one of my favorite teachings of his. He says, we never move from error to truth. He says, we move from lower truth to higher truth. Exactly. And every perspective, even if somebody says something that I deeply disagree with, even let's say they are wrong, literally, in terms of what they're saying, but they're probably saying that because of a certain life experience, because of a certain kind of, of uh, collection of emotions that they're having at that particular time. And we can't ignore that there is some valid human experience that's trying to express itself maybe very, very imperfectly through some utterance that someone has. So to listen to each other and to be very patient and to really dig to the heart of things. And I find some of the best conversations I have are when I'm talking with someone with whom I really disagree. But yeah. if I can repeat back to them, well, what I think I hear you saying is this. And if what I say... Is, they say yes, you've got it, you've understood. Then for the rest of the conversation, I might say anything, and they're they're okay with me because they know that I get it, right? That they are being heard, and right. I think that's just tremendously important. I think there are a lot of people who, rightly or wrongly, don't feel heard right now, and right. from across the political spectrum and all religious communities, non-religious, I, I see that. So let me ask you this question. So because you also teach Jainism, and you're in your kind of, you're an expert in Jainism. Um, do you think the philosophical position of Anekavada would be very, very? I mean, I mean, I think it's such an important concept. Is how 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 can it be taught at a either academic level or brought into our, I guess, our our, our world today as we because well, it, it's yeah. a beautiful concept. Well, yeah, and this is something that's been a big part of my work actually, and uh, um, I've begun to think that if, if it's really going to be promoted, it would need to, uh, we need to develop an educational system where Anekantavad is a foundational principle, that we're going to look at the whole range of possible perspectives on truth, hold whatever perspective you wish to hold, but then you're going to have to argue for it, right, the traditional Prabhupada yeah. method, but the challenge will always be to also be able to see and articulate the other truth, right, the opposite truth. And uh, one thing about Anikantavada, and this is what I'm going to be speaking on in the Vedanta Society in New York in a couple of weeks, actually, is, uh, well, in one week, <laughs> I better get writing, but uh, the, uh, um, that the vision that Ramakrishna expresses and this ancient Jain teaching are very much in sync. Uh, the, traditionally, the Vedantins and the Jains were at odds, right? They were engaged in the, the kind of polemic that we were talking about. Uh, but I would, I think that uh, a, a Vedantin in the Ramakrishna tradition could agree that at least on the level of epistemology, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you know Jainism has a dualistic ontology, you know it's different from non-dualism and so on. Yeah. But at least from the point of view of epistemology, that we have to say reality is multifaceted, uh, simply because of the existence of so many uh, worldviews held by people that, if we're honest, we have to say, well. They're, it's not because they have bad sanskaras or they're, they're stupid. You know, very, very good, bright people disagree about the nature of reality. So something about the nature of reality is lending itself to this diversity of perspectives. So I, I, in a lot of my own work, what I've tried to do is basically uh, establish that as a foundational principle, that uh, this multiplicity is something that 
we shouldn't see as a problem, but as sort of in, embedded in the very nature of the conversation. Because I think traditionally, especially in the West, but you even sometimes see this in, in, in uh, Indic writings, uh, there's an understanding that, well, there's one truth, and then there are all these wrong views. Uh, right. But yet again, if, if we're moving from lower truth to higher truth, then what you have is, you know, maybe there are relative degrees of truth, and we can differ about which view is more relatively true than the other, but that, uh, you know, there's some, something of value to be found in every single perspective. Absolutely. Hey, Rachel, do you have anything else to add? Uh, and then we'll yes. jump on to the reincarnation. Well, actually, Professor Long, if you could talk about the relationship of Anekantavada with Syadavada, and then also how the sort of Jain skepticism relates to more of the Peronian and academic skepticism of Greece, that would be very interesting. Okay, oh, sure. So, uh, well, the relationship between Anekantavada and Syadavada, and in fact, there's a third doctrine in there too, Nayavada, which is, uh, so you have Anekantavada, which of uh, for viewers who are less versed in Sanskrit, it's the doctrine of multiple perspectives, or you could call it the doctrine of the complexity of existence. That existence lends itself to being perceived in many ways. And then you have Nayavada, which is the ways of perceiving existence. So it's the doctrine of perspectives. Naya is a point of view. And each of these facets of the complex reality has a corresponding point of view uh, to which it gives rise. Then Syadvada is the method of speech that is appropriate to an awareness of these multiple perspectives and multiple views. So Syat in Sanskrit, ordinarily it means it may be, it could be, but in Jain teaching it actually means from a particular point of view or in a certain sense it is the case that X. And this has been developed into um, a sevenfold uh, sort of understanding of truth in which for any given philosophical statement you could say that it is in one sense true, in one sense false, in one sense both true and false, and in one sense indescribable or neither true nor false, and then you have the three possible non-redundant combinations of those four and you get seven different layers or levels of truth. And so the idea of Sattvata is that if we further specify the sense in which we're making a claim, from what perspective is it true, what piece of reality are we addressing with that truth, then we can speak in a more precise and more clear way and in a more true way, whereas the, our tendency is to speak in very broad absolutist terms and by as a result we miss other aspects of reality that don't get covered by those terms. So it's like fuzzy logic. But yeah, yeah, it's trying to it's trying to defuzzify uh, things and, and make them clearer by making them more specific. Uh, so, in 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 the classic uh, giant examples, you know, they're uh, they were involved in polemic with uh, schools of thought like Sankhya and Nyaya, which affirmed uh, eternal substances, and schools of thought like Buddhism, which affirmed impermanence, universal impermanence. And they were always at pains to say that if you look at the totality of experience, there's something that persists and there's something that changes, and that we need to acknowledge both rather than dogmatically claiming that one of these is true and the other is an illusion or a mistake. And, right. uh, and that in fact, if you, if you dig deeply into what the philosophical traditions themselves claim, 
um, and this is my own maybe kind of somewhat quasi-Hegelian addition to Jainism, uh, but that, that you even find this if you tease out the logic of certain perspectives. So, for example, when you take the, the Buddhist claim that all is impermanent, right? Sarvamanityam, universal impermanence. Well, the truth of the claim that all is impermanent is not impermanent. It is right. permanent, right? It's, it's a description of the ultimate nature of things from a Buddhist perspective. So there is something that's not impermanent, which is the statement that all is impermanent. So, right. um, and in fact, the Buddhist version of this, of course, is Nagarjuna's dialectic, whereas you know, the moment you try to state things in words, you're going to, uh, you're, it's going to be a partial perspective and it's going to be self-annihilating, finally. So the, I think one thing that w where Sadhvara is kind of similar to, to Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism that way, is in uh, pointing us beyond the realm of speech, finally to a realm of, of experience. The truth has to be experienced. And Ravachit, uh, you'd asked about uh, Greek skepticism and, and Pyrrhonism and so forth. And I don't know enough about that material to say what I'm about to say with a lot of confidence. But based on what I have studied, my sense is that some of the ancient Greek skeptics were about a similar project. That is, it was not a sort of... Uh, it, it wasn't the kind of, uh, well, these words have crept into our language, too. So I, I'm trying to say, well, it's not a type of cynicism, but the cynics were themselves a Greek school of thought. But uh, yeah. that it, it wasn't what we today often take it to be, where, uh, okay, there is no meaning, there's nothing we can know, so let's just sort of, I don't know, have a good time. Uh, but that these seem to have been connected with spiritual practice on some level. Uh, the, the ancient Greek skeptics are depicted as living a lifestyle not unlike that of Jane mendicants. Uh, some of them didn't wear clothes, they would scandalize people because they would never take a bath, and you know, they were living in rags, and, and uh, the way they were described is the way a householder who really isn't that knowledgeable about a spiritual path might describe a sannyasi or a sadhu. Like that, well, these people are a little bit crazy, they're living on the edge of society. But uh, I, I think there was a lot more interchange between ancient India and ancient Greece than is often understood in the general public. I think scholars are pretty aware of this now. It's become a big topic of, uh, of, 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 of scholarship. Uh, but even pre-Alexander, uh, there was some kind of exchange going on between the, the Hellenistic world and the Indic world. Yeah, I think there, uh, Thomas McNeilvey. Evely, uh, no, uh, 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 Structure yeah. of, uh, Shape of Ancient Thought. He talks about yeah. it actually with the Persian Empire. And yeah. he's got chapters in there with the Jains and the Orphics. And so he yeah. talks about all these concordances. So that's where I was first exposed to you know, some, uh, 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 some of these ideas. And just found that fascinating that there was this whole two-way transmission of ideas even in the pre-Alexander uh, days. Yes, yes. And I think Persia was a very important part of that as well. And oh, yeah. uh, I think that's something else that merits even further. I mean, there are people looking at that, but he, I'm interested in seeing more work of that kind uh, done. Uh, because uh, when, when when I teach my courses too, I, mean, I also talk about Zoroastrianism, for example. And you know, you had this this massive region that's right smack between India and the Greek world. It had to have some relevance in the transmission of of uh, these concepts and in, in the transformation of these concepts. So. Uh, yeah, I think there, there was a lot going on. And of course you could also argue that some of these things are universal, that, uh, that no matter which culture you're from or what ideas you've been exposed to, that if reality has a certain kind of objective structure, people are going to become aware of that and they're going to express it in their different cultural idioms. And you'll find correspondences, I, I, fascinating correspondences between Chinese thought and Vedanta, for example. Uh, 
There was an edited volume put together by uh, Ittamar Theodore, who also contributed to my reincarnation volume. He has this volume, Brahman and Tao, and it's, it's great. I mean, he talks about correspondences between Taoism and uh, Vedanta. And uh, Victor Mayer, uh, University of Pennsylvania, he's a really great translation of the Tao Te Ching and has an extensive article where he talks about correspondences between Sankhya, Yoga, Vedanta, the Upanishads, and the tradition of the Tao Te Ching. So, so people are perceiving, I think, a lot of these things across different cultures, as well as being influenced by each other culturally. Rajat, anything else to add? Oh, nothing. Thank you so much. Yeah, I just wanted to, I just want to say, like, for this particular point, it's, if, 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 if the underlying idea is, and the, pr the premise of which I think we all hold is that there's an underlying truth to all this, then of course different cultures and societies would, would have their own systems based on what their experience of that truth was, right? right. So, and the correlations that happen because they exist. Right, right. exactly. And then kind of going back to an earlier topic, this is one of the things that attracted me to the Ramakrishna tradition. Uh, because it's it's just seemed to me you know instinctive from my childhood that you know if reality is a certain way and people are equally roughly equally intelligent around the world they're all yeah. going to perceive that reality to some extent and uh, so uh, privileging one particular religion or culture as you know this is the one true one just always seemed to me to be you know, provincial, and everyone's going to say it's theirs, right? So, right, you know. <laughs> no, but I mean, but the thing is, obviously, since you've read the Gita so many times, where Krishna himself says, you know, everyone that worships all these other beings, they in fact worship me, and I am the source of their. Uh, so, so he, he, I mean, he's not telling stop worshiping and only worship me. He's saying, everyone has their own gunas that you have to follow and worship whatever your gunas, and that's going to probably come into our reincarnation topic yeah. because I think. Reincarnation is a foundation of, first of all, the Gita, the way the Gita uh, issues its message out. But before you get to that point, because someone did write about that, I think Theodore is the one Theodore, that yeah. wrote about the reincarnation and the Gita. the Gita. How did your book or your edited volume on the reincarnation um, phenomenon and, and ideas come into reality? Okay. Or what was the impetus for it? Well, there, there were two different uh, panels at the American Academy of Religion, actually two different years. Uh, in, I want to get the year right, I think 2016, I think 2016, there was a joint meeting of uh, Dhanam and the Society for Hindu-Christian Studies, mm -hmm. and they were talking about this topic of reincarnation, and I absolutely wanted to be there because, I mean, this has been a driving concept of my life, my scholarly work, my spiritual life, everything, and one of the things that I found interesting uh, this is a topic that clearly many, many scholars find fascinating, and yet hardly anyone ever talks about. Right. Uh, they're, the, the book, they're, they're going to be, you know, the, well, let's do a Freudian reading of this particular Hindu scholar, or you know, something like this. So um, the room was packed with people, and a standing room only, and really brilliant scholars. Um, Jonathan Edelman was there, who contributed to the volume. Uh, Chakravarti Ram Prasad was there, uh, Ankur Barua was there, Frank Clooney, um, Bradley Malkowski from Notre Dame, uh, who uh, was uh, also a contributor to the volume. And uh, so I really enjoyed that. And one of the things that in the discussion that followed that came about was we need to continue this conversation. So because I've very closely been closely involved with Donham, I proposed in the following year, which would be 2017, uh, I proposed that we have 
uh, a panel on reincarnation and continuing that conversation. And Jerry Larson was part of that. Um, Jonathan Edelman, I believe, again was part of that. Um, I was there, several other uh, scholars. And that particular panel was attended by one of the editors of a journal called Religions, which is an online journal, open access journal. And he suggested that he was so taken with the conversation, he said, you should do um, a, what we call a special issue on this topic. And if you get 10 articles or more, we will actually publish it as a, as a volume. And so uh, I sent a call out uh, to Risa, several other websites, and said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing this volume, I'm interested. And I personally contacted specific people that I knew I, I wanted to have contribute as well. So uh, most of them said yes, and then I got a few additional people through just this broad call that I made. And the result was we have 14 articles, and so they published it. Um, putting it together took the better part of 2018. And I have to admit, I'll say here right in public, most of the delays were because of me. Uh, <laughs> everyone was very prompt in getting their materials to me and responding to everything, but I, I was involved in a bunch of stuff, so it took forever. But uh, my articles, uh, my introduction and then my own article were the last pieces to be written. Uh, well, no, and then Frank Clooney did a, a response, which yeah. uh, he had been the respondent to our Donham panel as well, and he expanded upon those comments. And then... Uh, yeah, it came out in January of this year, and I'm very proud of it. It's called uh, Perspectives on Reincarnation, Hindu, Christian, and Scientific. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's pretty much, I mean, that describes the articles right there. And, and I think it was, uh, to be honest, like, so I finished all the articles. It was really fascinating. Um, you know, it was just a wealth of information I did not have from before, right? You know, there's like, um, like the, especially the, 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 I, the stuff that uh, I think uh, who wrote here, um, I, Christopher Chapel, uh, Christopher Key Chapel's uh, article about like the differences between Buddhist, Jain, and then Hindu versions of reincarnation. Um, Lee Irwin's article was actually very interesting, especially the American concepts and the Western right. idea of reincarnation. Because I, I touched upon a few of those things when I studied Greek philosophy and and stuff like that. But the depth that he covered it over the course of two thousand years was was right. really interesting. Um, and, and obviously, has a book on that too, which I recommend. He he has yeah. a whole book on that topic. And then uh, Bradley Malkowski, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, his was really fascinating with the because he he actually, I think part of it was I think Clooney responded to him a little more than a few other people just because they're both talking about the Catholic tradition. Right. Um, and I love, I, I all the articles are great. I mean, just especially like the the one about uh the Punar Janmakshepa. Um, yes. That was really interesting. I did not know such a document existed. Basically, like it's a. Uh, I mean, actually, can we go through it? Like uh, the, sure, the, chapter by chapter. The, yeah, yeah, like, like the ones that that yeah. Let's go chapter by chapter and just kind of discuss the topics because I think they actually. It's really fascinating. It just it kind of it was it was well very well done the way you structured it, um, and kind I of. thought it was uh, it, it flowed very nicely and there's so much information. It was and, and all the authors did a great job of actually conveying a lot of these really interesting ideas and thoughts in a very easily readable manner. So um, just before we get into into it, um, can you kind of describe the three types of karma? Uh, the uh, Prarabdha karma, uh, Sanchita karma, and uh, San, Sanchi Yama karma, Yamana karma? So, and now I hope I don't get them mixed up, uh, but the... <laughs> 
<laughs> but the parabdha karma is what we um, what is what is already in motion, and uh, in a sense has to be experienced, right? So it it is uh, karma that we bring into this life, and uh, we can't really undo it. It 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 okay. has to it has it has to come to fruition. It's still in the process of coming to fruition, and uh, then you have uh, the karmas. Now again, I, I I mix the two up sometimes, but uh, there are karmas that are experienced more or less instantaneously, right? They're they're the ones that you know John Lennon's famous instant karma, right? That that yeah. that come to fruition in this life and that are I think that's such uh -huh. the karma. I think that's such the karma that that are very clearly of you know cause and effect relations. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in fact, someone who does not even believe in karma in the broader sense would accept this particular sense of karma. It's just sort of like this this immediate causation. Right. And. Uh, and then you have, and now again, I, I, I'm getting uh, hazy on Yamana karma. Yamana karma. Uh, I believe this is connected more with uh, with ritual. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, th I think I might be. I might be. No, because I think this karma is actually the karma that is done in this life, but goes into your next life. Oh yeah, it becomes the parabdha karma of the next yeah. life. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's it's the mirror of parabdha karma, you could yeah. say, in that sense. Yeah. So you have the, the karma that you 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 do because of course the original meaning of karma is work or action. Right. So you do the action; it has its effect. You have karma whose effect is immediate. You have karma whose effects you're still experiencing. The action was not committed in this right. life; it's inherited. And you have the actions that will yet be experienced in the the more distant future. And it's those. First and third that really bring the topic of reincarnation to the fore, right? Because right. Uh, it, the the middle one is something like I said, someone who doesn't even really believe in this whole system can accept that actions have effects, and we experience right. those effects very often. Uh, but uh, and I've actually even talked to skeptics who are willing to say, well, our actions have future effects, but we don't experience those. They're experienced, you know, historically later on, you know, and and so on. But the the concept of karma. <laughs> is accepted and again with with variations across the Indic traditions is that we ourselves will in some sense experience the effects of all these actions and so right. since one lifetime is clearly not sufficient for uh, accounting for the effects of all these actions since we clearly do things and don't live to experience their necessary results that has to happen at some later point <coughs> and, and the same is true at the other end with Parabdha Karma it explains the inequalities, the unevenness we see in the world, that we're not all born as blank slates, and we're not all right. born with the same conditions. So those conditions have to have been set in motion previously uh, by us, according to the Indian model. Uh, Max Weber called it the perfect, the rationally perfect theodicy. Uh, yes. he was, it's not clear if he believed in it, but he, he, he found it quite persuasive, at least on a logical level, that... Um, it places the entire responsibility for our actions and their effects on ourselves. Right. Um, critics can say, well, then you're blaming the victim in terms of you, you see someone suffering, well, it's because it of the But uh, Swami Vivekananda flipped that and said that uh, if we caused it, that means we can uncause it, we can undo it, we can take different, you know, uh, the power is in our hands to make different decisions now in the present and change our future. Uh, so that it, it can be seen as an empowering doctrine uh, or as a fatalist doctrine. And of course, we see both of those in the Indian traditions. Right, 
Right. So it's actually, uh, have you heard of, uh, I think, Professor A.L. Herman? Um, yeah. He wrote a book actually called The Problem of Evil, um, yes. where he, he, he goes through the theodicies of Christianity, Islam, and then various types of uh, um, Hindu Vedanta and stuff like that. So he, it's, it's an amazing book. And I think finally he, he came to the right. He says the, the, the tightest one is like Ramanujas and someone else's. Yeah, but yeah. that's his, from his perspective. Yeah. Um, but it's, I, it's a fascinating edition. I, I tend to be pretty close to his perspective on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can we get into your, the, the, the chapter? So you want to start with your chapter that you, uh, not your, like your introduction, but kind of like your, yeah. The my, my chapter. My chapter is a defense of the rationality of believing in reincarnation. And I make a distinction, which I, I, I hope comes, comes through in the article, between sort of asserting that reincarnation is the case and saying that uh, to believe in reincarnation is not an irrational response to the data of being human and uh, the kinds of experiences we have because it, it tends to be written off in the Western world as just a crazy idea and this is the reason I think a lot of people don't write about it even though they're fascinated by it but, but uh, you know, they're unwilling to be labeled kooks if they come out and say well I actually take this idea seriously and uh, however I think it stands up really well you know in the sort of Purvapaksha sense if you contrast it with its alternatives and so uh, in the article what I do is I, I give a little bit of my autobiographical background, uh, sort of what I mentioned earlier in our podcast. Mm -hmm. And then I talk about, uh, first of all, just the justification for not taking a materialist perspective. <coughs> up. In other words, what about the widespread view that you just die and that's it, and life is hard, too bad, that's just how the universe is. And uh, uh, saying that, no, they're actually rational grounds for the kind of cosmic hope, to use John Hicks' term, uh, that you see in the world's religions. That, uh, um, and I talk about William James and uh, his idea of the, you know, the rationality of belief and that so long as something does not clash with our best scientific understanding and so long as believing in it improves your life, makes you a better person, then purely on those pragmatic grounds, he said, you have the right to believe whatever you want. And uh, some would say, well, reincarnation contradicts science because, well, there's, there's no evidence for it. But it's different. there's a difference between saying that there's insufficient evidence for something and saying that it cannot be the case. Right? Mm -hmm. there, I, I, I think it's tendentious to say that uh, there cannot be reincarnation. That involves a whole prior set of philosophical claims, not just scientific observation. So, um, so uh, that's my argument that you know we are rationally justified in believing in something and then I say well why reincarnation so one alternative of course already discussed is the materialist one the other is the one we tend to find in the Abrahamic religions where you have a heaven or a hell and then I, I go through the argument I had in, in, in my own mind in my childhood with uh, with the the traditional Catholic point of view on that. And I actually engage directly with Bradley Malkowski's article there because in his article he explains why the Roman Catholic Church traditionally rejects the idea of reincarnation. Right. And right. I want to take that very seriously. So um, I give an argument for what well, first of all I say, well, what do I mean by reincarnation? And I talk about Ramakrishna and Vivekananda and what have they said about this topic. And then I get into the science a little more. And I say, well, actually, uh, there is 
an area where there's some pretty interesting science going on that is, if we want to be modest, we could say it's at least suggestive of the possibility of reincarnation. And that's the work of Jim Tucker uh, building on the earlier famous work of Ian Stevenson, University of Virginia. And his really famous case is Ryan Monroe. And I remember in seeing this on NBC Nightly News a few years ago. And I actually show this clip in a lot of my classes where you, know, you have this little boy from Oklahoma his parents are Southern Baptists, so they don't believe in reincarnation. They have no motivation to implant the idea in his mind through suggestion that he was someone else at some point. He just had all these very detailed uh, memories, this really detailed knowledge in his mind of this relatively unknown Hollywood agent named Marty Martin. And when they connected with uh, Tucker, Tucker did what he does. That is, he did the research. And he found just remarkable correlations between what this little boy was saying and the details of the life of this man, details that were not widely available. He wasn't a famous person. You know, and and uh, uh, in fact, uh, the really remarkable one is that when, when Ryan actually correctly gave the age at which Marty Martin died, and, it, and the birth certificate had been mistaken about that. And right. they, they spoke with his children, and it turned out the birth certificate was wrong, and the little boy from Oklahoma knew knew when this man died. So I was I was actually on another podcast recently talking about this, and the the person I was talking with expressed some skepticism, say, "Well, reincarnation." The Carbuckle podcast. That's yeah, right, yeah, with yeah, and then they said, "Well, reincarnation isn't the only explanation for this." I said, "Well." Another one that comes to mind is that there was some telepathic link between right, this right. little boy and that man. But then even if we go with that, we've radically undercut the dominant materialist paradigm because Absolutely. this is not a mechanistic causation occurring. And what Tucker does in his book Return to Life is actually use quantum theory and the double slit experiment to construct an idea of consciousness as non-local, as involving causation uh, on levels that we would not normally, you know, attribute to a mechanistic universe, and uh, comes up with a model of reality that's strikingly Vedantic. Uh, he describes the passage from one life to another as the transition from one dream state to another dream state. Right. And I mean that, that's right out of uh, the Vedantic scriptures or Yogacara Buddhism, for that matter. And so, um, and 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 this is, I think, very interesting because Tucker is not, to my knowledge, particularly well versed in Indic traditions. But through looking at the data and looking at the current science, he's basically replicated what certain Indic traditions say about the nature of consciousness and the nature of reality, which to me is suggestive that, again, if there is an objective nature of existence, that it's being independently perceived and arrived at through different methods and different sources. So, again, it's not that it proves it true, but it means you're not, you're not crazy if you think it may be true. And uh, it's, in, in fact in some ways a more compelling option than the traditional materialism because you got to explain Ryan somehow. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, Rajit? Uh, nothing to add over here. So, yeah, I mean, for me, like, so that was, I obviously, I, I previously I've read Ian Stevenson's work, uh, you know, uh, 20 Suggestions Cases for Reincarnation, um, which is a fascinating read. And, and, I, and I think, like, <clears throat> if anyone spends time and, and reads that book, you can see the amount of diligence and time and energy and and he tries to he does really steel man the opposing position and, oh. and, and tries to show that this cannot be reincarnation this cannot be uh, it, there could be no other re explanation and he he has to take the position that it maybe it's something happening oh. right 
and and the and the crazy part to me is even if one of these cases is true, and I think you mentioned this too, and even I mean, Tucker mentions it, and the also the I think Ted Ted uh, Christopher or uh, yes. Yeah, he, he also mentioned it. it's this idea that if any of these things is shown to be even possibly true, why aren't we doing any more work on it? And why aren't we not trying to understand if our own presuppositions about the material world are in fact not correct? Right. And, and, right. No. Yeah. and there's like this ossification and there's, I mean, there's this, I guess, resistance from scientists that if you even jump into that subject, you're a kook, you're a quack, yeah. you're, you're, but the thing is, someone did the work already to show that there's, this is a possibility. If it is possible, shouldn't we explore that as, as, a, a, as if we truly believe we are investigators of truth, trying yeah. to understand reality, shouldn't that be something that we should look at? Absolutely. And, and I think it, it, it reveals the fact that we're not doing it to a greater extent than we are. Uh, show, well, it, it sort of proves uh, Thomas Kuhn's famous thesis that, you know, that, that uh, um, scientific advance has as much to do very often with social factors and people's prejudices and sure. who gets funding and that sort of thing. Uh, one of the things that I found encouraging, though, is uh, if you look on the University of Virginia's website, they're actually using Tucker's research as a fundraising uh, device. They're saying, look at this interesting research we're doing. So they're not hiding it or trying to cover it up. Uh, so maybe maybe there is an opening here. Another thing that I find, too, among scientists, uh, I've consulted our local uh, physics uh, professor uh, here at, at Elizabethtown College about a lot of this, uh, a physicist named Mark Stuckey. He's very open to all of this. I mean, the physicists, I think, are sometimes several steps ahead <laughs> of what many of the rest of us are. And in fact, I was talking about some of the, you know the weird quantum effects and things that Tucker was talking about, and Mark was saying, uh, "Oh, it's even weirder than that." And he, you know, he, he was <laughs> getting into detail about all of these things. And uh, so, uh, what happens, I think, is that the other sciences, and then you you sort of move away. If you think of physics as like the ultimate hard science, and then you move into biology, psychology, and then finally out into you know the social sciences, and then the study of religion and so on. We're all later to catch up to where the physicists are, right? So right. I think a lot of the popular materialism is sort of 18th century materialism, really, that not even any real physicists believe in anymore. So uh, it's it's a matter of getting this uh, knowledge out to a wider public. Because I mean, I talk to my students about these things. You say quantum theory, you, know, you can immediately see their eyes glaze over, right? Unless right. Unless it's like the one physics major in the room, you know, and then they get excited. But, uh, you know, people are so intimidated by science very often, uh, especially people who go into the humanities, you know, into fields like mine. They don't want to have that conversation, you know. And, and, and I have a really good friend who's quite a skeptic about all of these things. And, you know, very often uh, they are as invested in their skepticism as we believers might be in our belief. Uh, that is... Uh, a materialist paradigm is something, this is hard for me to conceive of, but I take their word for it, that a lot of people actually find comforting. That they yeah. like to think that, well, this life is it, and then when I'm done, I don't have to deal with anything else, <laughs> and, uh, and that's all there is. And so they are as threatened by this kind of conversation as, say, a traditional church person would be threatened sure. by it. So, uh, so, I mean, from my perspective, so I'm like, so I, I mean, honestly speaking, I, 
I would grew up in this tradition, so I have a sense of reincarnation and rebirth. But I'm also very, uh, to be honest, and this is a problem I think I have for myself is I have this belief that I want to believe in, and I mm -hmm. think it's probably true. But then I have this sense about me trying to be like objective, skeptical, um, that 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 pulls me away, right? And there's this constant struggle within myself to deal with with how to justify the possibility of me even having that belief, right? Right, right. And, and that's and, perfectly understandable, right. right. So it's it's so ha so your book and, and and all reading all this was very very helpful to to get me to a position where I'm closer to be like, okay, I think my belief system might be more true than or at least more possible true than I give credit for. So in that sense, so this book was, I mean, it was great. So it, from a personal perspective, I really enjoyed it. And your article was, was well argued, well put together. And um, and I was just gonna say, one of the things I have noticed is physicists, like you said, are much more likely, especially quantum physicists, to to buy into or, 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 to, or to be like, hey, this is a possibility. Right. What I find is a lot of neuroscientists have difficulty with it because of their intense focus that the brain itself is a seat of all consciousness and yeah. it's it's an epiphenomenon as opposed yeah. to being like a fundamental nature of reality that quantum physics sees it as that's right uh, Richard, do you have anything to add to that well i mean a few things i i would disagree that most physicists hold that point of view in the early 20th century they did you get the short the uh schrodinger's of the world the heisenberg and you know all these guys we interacted with even uh Swami Vivekananda and so on, they had these kind of views. Uh, I, I, I think it was um, historian of science, I'm forgetting his name right now, it was at Berkeley, who really talks about um, uh, epistemological uh, anarchism. And, you know, he, well, one issue that he brings up is back in the day, physicists were actually you know, sort of poets as well, right? They had a, 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 a large uh, sort of grounding in other fields of thought as opposed to uh, you know just physics. And what's happened with hyper-specialization is most physicists today are really experimentalists, right? So they don't really think about the philosophical underpinnings of their worldview. You know, my, this, this materialist worldview really comes from the Vienna Circle, a logical positivism yeah, right. that yeah. was uh, really influenced by a misreading of Wittgenstein. And most yes, people don't realize yes. Wittgenstein himself was actually, you know, didn't believe in any of this. And if you right. see some of his unpublished writings that are just coming out, I think Ray Monk did a beautiful job about writing his biography. Uh, you know, what's what's the what's what's the term that he uses to describe uh, Wittgenstein's own belief system? Where uh, he, I, I think it's a it's a fideist or something. I think fideist, right? Right. Yes. Sorry, that, there you go. And so you know, it's 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 really brilliant to see that you know uh, the uh, logical grounding of this worldview is pretty shaky. And that most people who espouse this view haven't actually gone back to study the foundations. But on the flip side, again, uh, Professor Long, as you talked about, uh, most people in the social sciences, even neuroscience, psychology, haven't studied enough of the hard sciences to, you know, and I mean, uh, let alone getting to the philosophical foundation of the sciences to question those beliefs that are propagated into these, uh, you know, more, uh, uh, what, 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 I mean, I guess, I'm losing, uh, what word would I use for uh, these higher sciences or you know some stuff that's you know well removed from uh, the basic you know grounding right. of reality? Well, you're right. Yeah, and and so this sort of materialist worldview is simply taken to be the scientific view, right? Um, yeah. By people, you know, people in my field, for example, because we are dependent on uh, the scientists in those fields to for, you know for our understanding of 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 what's going on, and if we don't stay abreast of that. Uh, we're just going to repeat the prejudices of others, and 
And I think what, what uh, Mukunda, what you said about uh, neuroscientists is also really true, uh, that uh, it's sort of axiomatic that the brain is the generator of consciousness. Right. Rather than what it, it might be from more of this sort of Vedantic or quantum perspective is something like a receiver of consciousness. And uh, I remember, uh, again, I mentioned my skeptic friend who, who also is a neuroscientist, and, and he said, you know, uh, look, if I, if I bash your head in, uh, there is no more consciousness. Uh, you're, you are not there. And uh, my retort to him was that, well, you know, if you bash my TV apart, uh, I'm not getting any more signal, but that doesn't mean the people at the TV network aren't still transmitting. Uh, it's right. just my, my physical receiver is no longer capable of picking it up. So, yeah. Uh, so I, I think that the, the evidence underdetermines really either side of this debate. I, I, I think we're still at a stage where we're, it's like William James says, we tend to think what we want to think about these things and then match up the evidence with, with those uh, prejudices. But uh, I think in, in our dominant discourse, there's an assumption that materialism isn't a prejudice, that it's uh, somehow an established scientific truth. And it's, it's really not. It's a philosophical perspective along with the others. You're right. I mean, there's like this trend now, uh, I think, with like people like David Chalmers and the Heart Problem Consciousness. You know, you have uh, David Eagleman, who's also a neuro neuroscientist, who, who they're all coming to this perspective, or some of them are, saying that consciousness might be a fundamental reality. But what that means is different, right? That's, that's a very difficult, like, uh, how do you go from there to say it's a Jiva or Atma or something else? It's, it's a whole other step. But at least there's this dialogue now to say that maybe there's something inherent about the nature of consciousness that is not just materialistic. Exactly, exactly. It's like that, a step, it's a like small step. Small step, yeah, small step. And, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's a step away from actually a very deeply held, I would call it Western view, because you have both religious and non-religious versions yeah. of it, which is that consciousness is somehow an add-on to what is basically a material reality. And of course the religious version of this is in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God creates human beings out of the stuff of the earth and then infuses life into them. And, uh, and then of course the secular version of this is through physical processes consciousness evolves over time. Right. Uh, but in both cases there's just an assumption that the material world is, is the basic thing. And this is something I always like to sort of flip with my students and they always say oh this is very mind-blowing and so on but the, the idea that consciousness is prior and that what we call a material world is the way consciousness appears to itself right, so it right. has to appear as something you know it appears as time space causation but you know how do you know when you're in a dream and when you're in what we call waking life when you're in the dream the dream is as real as the waking experience right uh, Rachid? Uh, no, you know, I actually like the point you brought up about Chalmers and, you know, just this rise of panpsychism. And Professor Long, I, I'm, I'm not sure how much you've studied uh, Vaisheshika and uh, Sankhya, but are there any correspondences in the worldview that's, you know, uh, 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 espoused by modern panpsychism and the Vaisheshika or Sankhya view of the world? I would think it would be closer to Sankhya than to Vaisheshika. Um, of course, uh, the Vaisheshika have the atomic concept of self, and uh, I think that this uh, emerging panpsychism is probably closer to Sankhya, where consciousness is more of an all-pervading reality. Uh, there are, of course, different phases historically of Sankhya. What we think of as the classical Sankhya, there's this 
total ontological separation of the purusha, the pure consciousness, from the prakriti, but it is misidentifying itself with the prakriti. There are sort of earlier iterations, or maybe you'd call them proto-sankhya uh, indications in places like the Upanishads, where the purusha is pervading the prakriti. And um, that, I think, is close to certain versions of panpsychism, or uh, as, uh, as David Ray Griffin uh, in the process school of thought calls it, uh, panexperientialism. Uh, one of the interesting differences, I think this is a difference among panpsychists, is a willingness to call this all-pervasive something, whether to call it consciousness or to call it something else. Because I know Griffin, for example, has reservations about using the word consciousness for anything other than consciousness as we conventionally experience it. Right. But he, he's willing to go as far as what with, with Whitehead as saying that there's even experience at the subatomic level. And then, I mean, there, there's sort of this differentiation between experience and consciousness. Because I think in the Indic traditions, they sort of bite the bullet and they just say that's all consciousness, right? Yeah. Uh, consciousness at different degrees of manifestation, but consciousness. And uh, I think another really important thinker in all of this is Sri Aurobindo, who really bridges the gap between uh, Western and, and Indic thought, I think. And he's one of the few people who's been in this privileged position of being very steeped in both both traditions and uh, his when he talks about evolution and involution for example you know these two sides of the same coin uh, is consciousness evolving or is it manifesting well it's it's both and uh, you know and it's 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 you know two sides of the same process and of course Vivekananda is the first one to coin this uh, terminology but he passed away before he could develop it I think that was left to Aurobindo really uh, to develop that further. But uh, yet, yeah, towards seeing the universe as a manifestation of consciousness, I think that uh, was probably closer to Vedanta than either Sankhya or Vaisheshika. But I think Vaisheshika, Vaisheshika is interesting because you have the Atman being one of the substances. Yep. And so it is in that sense, uh, you know, part of the givenness of the universe. So I'd see that that definitely is a correspondence. But. Uh, um, this question of you know of consciousness being atomic versus all pervasive, I know I, I maybe I'm just giving my own Vedantic bias away, but I, I tend to think more of the in the sort of all pervasive terms. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think there's work to be done on the correspondences with Vaisheshika and modern science as well on this topic. And and Vaisheshika Dvaita tries to have it both ways by yes. <laughs> by saying the Atma is Anu, but it's 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 Vibhu because it, it spreads out its uh, energy everywhere. It's a <laughs> Vivekananda has this great way of saying this in very simple English. He says, uh, the self is a, a circle whose circumference is infinite, yeah. but whose center is in a specific point. And it's like you said, it's having it both ways. And he says that point is the body, and that what happens in reincarnation is that center moves to another point. But the all-pervading circle, you know, of moves with it or stays the same or you know yeah it, i mean paradox body of an infinite circle so it, it also comes from karto upanishad right where it says uh, the, the minutest to the minutest and larger than the largest uh yeah. so it's uh it's a sense of like the atman is beyond description whatever you want to which whichever way you want to talk about it it's more than that or whatever that's that's right and then the jains do something uh they take yet a third route where um the uh atman pervades the body and yeah. they, they can bear they compare this to a light turning on in a room 
So the light coming out of the lamp takes the shape of the room, and in reincarnation, the shape, as it were, of the soul changes to accommodate the shape of the new body, just as if you move the lamp from one room to another. Right. And uh, it is certainly the case that there's an immediacy to our consciousness of our body that is not there elsewhere in the universe. I mean, I uh, at this stage in my personal uh, spiritual evolution, I can't know what's going on on Jupiter uh, with the same immediacy that I know what's going on in, in my stomach or right. in front of my eyes, you know, or these these things. So, yeah, I think there's still a lot to investigate in, in regard to these areas. You know, I, I mean, I, I think quite a few of your uh, authors in this, like like Larson, and then I think uh, uh, Christopher Key Chapel talk about the idea of <clears throat> like Buddha and uh, remembering his past lives along with the, the Mahavira and the Jainas. And then yes. including, um, you know, within Patanjali Yoga system, they also talk about the fact that once you get to a pure state of samadhi, your past life information kind of kind of starts shooting into you yes. or expresses itself. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the things I really uh, am grateful uh, to these authors for is that, that, that they included all of these perspectives in this book. So you've got like you said, Lear, when talking about uh, Western manifestations of this yeah. idea, all the way back to you know Plato and Pythagoras, right up to the present day, um, you have Jerry Larson really kind of bringing Sankhya into dialogue with the literary expression of the idea of rebirth. And then another article we haven't mentioned, but Nick Sarah, uh, who's actually an old friend of mine from college, uh, talks about uh, reincarnation in the work of William Butler Yeats. And, yes, uh, right getting into uh, Western esotericism back in the 19th century and early 20th centuries. And, you know, interesting people like Aleister Crowley and all of those guys. And then, of course, you've got the ones focused on the Hindu tradition, uh, Ittamar Theodore with the Gita uh, piece, mm -hmm. Steve Rosen talking about the wider Vaishnava tradition. And... Uh, um, it's really, uh, yeah, it's, I, I'm just, I'm quite grateful to these authors for having made this a very rich collection. And, uh, Absolutely. It's something that, you know, like, the one thing I, I really appreciated about this is these are topics, or the, the reincarnation is something, like, you know, that sits on my mind a lot, right? Like, in the sense of how would it work if it did work? What would the uh, uh, mechanisms, mechanisms be? You know, like, and all these, and I remember just recently, two weeks ago, uh, at a family uh, gathering, we're talking about like reincarnation and 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 why and I how I think it would work you know like uh, in, a, in a sense and it, it just but it's there's so many variables that play into the idea of reincarnation I think it becomes incredibly difficult as a conceptual uh, academic field to jump into just because you have to account for so many different things I and and I, I don't know like how do you how do you how do you think that how would you be able to approach it in that well, sense? Well, I, I think it's a field that's in its infancy. And yeah. what, we, what we need is, and, and this is really a place where the humanists and the scientists can really come together. Because mm -hmm. I think we need people like Stevenson and Tucker doing the past life memory research. What are the empirical data that we're seeing in children? You know, what, what can we say is the case? And of yeah. course, it's not it's not lab science, so that 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 makes it more challenging. But yeah, we have to account for a Ryan Monroe because it's simply not plausible to say that this was coincidence. Uh, the right. too detailed, it's too rich. Uh, you know, him getting the the uh, death date correct. You know, that's just that that's something that you couldn't produce in a lab. But 
it's a very compelling uh, piece of information. We need the physicists and I think we need the physicists and the neuroscientists to talk to each other more and on these questions about consciousness and uh, and you know how quantum can relate to what's going on in the brain. But at the same time, I think we need the religion scholars and the philosophers to be, uh, first of all, you know, the textual scholars to just be digging into all of these very rich traditions that talk about reincarnation in great detail. You know, there is a there's a Vaisheshika model of how rebirth works. There's a Jain model of how rebirth works. There, right, there's so right. many mul multiple models of how this could be, so many Buddhist models of how it could work. And then you expand that beyond India, you know, Native American concepts, ancient Greek concepts, Taoist concepts, and so forth. So putting together, you know, what exactly do we mean by reincarnation in all of these various traditions, and then at some level having a more of a meta-conversation, I guess this is really where the philosophers would come in, uh, where we bring the, the scientific conversation and all of this data from the world's religious traditions into a into a dialogue, and I I don't necessarily think this would ultimately issue in a kind of final theory of this is how it is, yeah. or you know like, like ah Sankhya was right all along or or something like that, but maybe that would be the ideal that would motivate it, right? Just like the idea of a grand unified field yeah. is a motivating concept that may never actually manifest, but yeah. it can drive a lot of very productive research. So, you know, trying to figure out reincarnation could be this multidisciplinary uh, project that brings together, you know, biology, neuroscience, physics, and uh, Indology, you know, your, your old-fashioned, you know, Sanskrit textual scholars, you know, looking, you know, pouring through the libraries, all really being part of this common enterprise of trying to figure out uh, this, uh, the reality behind this. Because it, it really does have an impact on how we perceive ourselves and the choices we make in our day-to-day -day existence. And uh, it, it, it matters, I think, in that sense. Just, to, just like knowing that we're on a tiny planet in a not particularly interesting galaxy in a corner of, of a very large universe has an impact on the way we think. Uh, you know, seeing our, our current life as maybe, you know, one chapter in a very, very long story or as, you know, one drop in an ocean of being will also shape our, our self-perceptions. Absolutely. Uh, Ratchet? Oh, nothing to add. Thanks. Um, so I, I think uh, we've taken a lot of your time. I just want to end on two, two points. Um, one, can you first describe your kind of you recently went on a trip to japan and you know there was like obviously uh, japan is very buddhist and, and shinto and and mixture of a lot of different things but there's these elements of indianness and hinduness that still uh run kind of through the t culture can you first talk about that and then uh lastly we'll end on like what your future projects are plus uh, your work at uh, donna Okay, wonderful. So uh, you've touched on a really fascinating topic, and it's one that my wife and I both have, have uh, taken a great interest in, and we might even at some point do some kind of joint scholarship on her area as Japan. Okay. And uh, my, mine, of course, is <laughs> India. And uh, I'll, I'll be a little bit autobiographical. Uh, so my wife has studied Japan and Japanese and been going to Japan for a very, very long time. And the first time she brought me to Japan with her, she she knows me very well, so she set up this wonderful itinerary, and uh, we went to Buddhist monasteries. We spent several days at uh, the head monastery of the Shingon uh, system of Buddhism. Uh, it's at a place called Mount Koya, Koyasan, uh, south of Kyoto and Osaka, uh, and uh, you know, way up on a mountain. You have to take this really scary cable car to get to the top, and so so we're there with these monks, and Shingon is a is 
a tantric form of Buddhism. And the founder of that tradition, uh, his name was Kukai, and he's better known now as Kobodaishi. Uh, he was a Japanese monk who lived in the uh, around the 8th century, and he traveled to China, and uh, his search was for authentic Buddhism. And he was aware that Buddhism had not really come from China. It had come to Japan via China and Korea, but it was really a, an Indian tradition. And he actually encountered, uh, there's debate about whether he encountered actual Indian Buddhist monks or monks who had been trained by Indian Buddhist monks. But he learned Sanskrit, and according to popular belief, he created one of the three Japanese alphabets that are currently used to write the Japanese language. They use Chinese characters, which they call kanji. There's another system called hiragana, which is syllabic. And if you know Devanagari, it's clearly based on the same kind of syllabic system. Wow. And he developed it in order to be able to translate the tantric Buddhist texts directly from Sanskrit to Japanese without the medium of Chinese because he realized that the Chinese medium changed the meaning of terms. So, you know, we see this all the time when we try to translate Sanskrit terms into English, right? You say dukkha is suffering, but then you have all kinds of misconceptions about what Buddhism is teaching and, and so on. So uh, he brought this, uh, this tradition back to Japan along with a mandala and a lot of Buddhist imagery. And if you go through Mount Koya, and then after that experience, go to various Buddhist temples across Japan, it just it strikes you how Indian it is. And in fact, many Japanese people themselves are not aware of how deeply Indian Buddhism is. And a lot of the imagery that they use, the um, funny story, when we were in Mount Koya, there, there's a cemetery there where uh, monks have been their ashes have been interred for many centuries. And there's, a, there's this pillar that has Devanagari writing on it. And I could read it. My wife could read it. I mean, anyone who knows Hindi could read it. And we overheard a tour guide uh, talking to people about you know, the cemetery. And someone asked, what is that writing? Because it's very clearly not Japanese or Chinese. And he said, this is Buddhist magical writing. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> and my wife and I are shaking our heads thinking, you know, we can read that. It's David Ar Now, he wasn't entirely wrong because it was a series of bija mantras. So okay. that's Tom. That is Buddhist magical writing. But, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not some script that came down from heaven. It's, a, it's an Indian script. And so uh, if you know what to look for, you see that, that Japan is full of Indian cultural influence, religious influence. You go to my favorite uh, Japanese temple in Kyoto, Sanju Sangendo, it is there's an, a, a thousand and one manifestations of Abhilokiteshwara. Who's, yes, I've been to that one. You've been there, yeah. They, they, they call, they call uh, Abhilokiteshwara Kanon in Japan, yeah. from Kanyin in Chinese. And the guardian deities that surround... The, yeah, yeah. They're, 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 all, they're, they're all from the Vedas. You know, you've, got, you've got Rudra, and you've got Vishnu, and Lakshmi, and Brahma. They're all... Indra, there. too, yeah. Indra with Japanese names and facial features, but yeah. they're clearly Hindu gods. And so uh, I think that uh, Hinduism, or what we now call Hinduism, traveled with Buddhism across Asia all the way to Japan and uh, has become almost this uh, kind of uh, open secret. Uh, that is, uh, I don't know how many, I mean, Japanese people know, I mean, the average person knows that Buddhism came from India, but it pretty much stops there. Right. But just how much, I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of, of Indic imagery that infuses Japanese temples. And uh, 
you know, even the Japanese way of life, I mean, a lot of it is Confucian, a lot of it came from China, but there's something very dharmic, I feel, about the way people make room for each other on a subway, or, yeah. you know, you think about the other person first, uh, you, you pour water for the other person before, you know, you would pour for yourself, and then, I mean, some of this has even been lost in India, right, oh, so we, totally we lost. yeah, yeah, <laughs> the chaos that is India, <laughs> exactly, and, and, and I think that, uh, you know, and, and we have all these stereotypes of, you know, India chaotic, Japanese ordered, you know, India developing, Japanese hypermodern, so that we don't think to look for India in Japan. That's but right. I think it's very much there, and, and, uh, and I think this is one of those cultural uh, awakenings that could really, uh, I mean, I could see it benefiting people from both heritages, you know, sort of understanding this, you know, kind of bond. Because if we, if if India and Japan, if we try to, if we insist on putting them on sort of a spectrum where they're the radical other of one another, then there's less possibility of communication. But right. uh, no, I think that there's a lot in Japan that's that is Indian that has been preserved that India could could reclaim. And I think people in Japan, by being aware of that Indic inheritance, uh, well, I mean, I think that would militate against some some of the xenophobia you see in Japanese society. There. Uh, the Japanese are like everybody else, you know. It's like, oh, our society is the best. We're unique, yeah. different. But it's like everybody, you know. We've all been interacting all through time, and and uh, so I think it's a really important topic, and I'm glad you asked about it. So, you know, what I find interesting is 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 um, in terms of both uh, people's understanding of what Hinduism and Buddhism is. Is I think people think that they were separate for so long, yeah. but like what we recognize is actually like. Many, many people like were Buddhists in philosophy, but in their practice were very Hindu, right? Yeah. So, and, and that's the, the, through time. And I think recently it's changed, but I think for most of history, that was of nature, like the, 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 the religion of ritual and practice and maybe even some of the gods and all this was very much integrated with the Buddhist ideas. Yeah. And they would kind of just travel together because they, they hadn't separated into Buddhism versus Hinduism versus, they were all part of this like, weird conglomerate of ideas that kind of move together in like clocks. Yeah. And very holistically, <laughs> you look at Angkor Wat and it's got temples yeah. to Vishnu, Shiva, and Buddha. And, uh, and of course, uh, if you look at Japan, uh, what do most people do? Uh, they'll have a Shinto wedding and a Buddhist funeral. Well, that's because there, there's not a Buddhist wedding, right? Buddhism is, is an ascetic tradition. We don't have a, so what did Indian Buddhists do? Well, they had Vedic weddings. They, you know, they they did all these things. And you know, it's it's also so interesting to see that many of the great Buddhist philosophers were Brahmins. They were trained in the Vedic tradition. They know this is one of the reasons why Buddhist texts started to be written in Sanskrit. Well, that's what the scholars knew because they'd grown up uh, in that sort of tradition of uh, punditry, and they they knew the Sanskrit texts yeah. and knew the language, and it was very natural to write in Sanskrit. And Absolutely. so. Uh, yeah, I, I think the two are so interwoven. And if you look at places uh, like Nepal, for example, uh, that was sort of more on the on the margin of South Asia, and it, it didn't suffer as much from the invasions and so forth that, that happened through the centuries, uh, there you see Buddhism and Hinduism really pretty nicely integrated. Uh, or, or again, maybe integration isn't even the right word because it presupposes two separate things. Yeah, that's right. They were always sort of organically interconnected. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Rakit, I know you have some things 
on your mind? No, no, this is actually brilliant, Professor Long. You pretty much hit upon everything I was going to ask you. So I was going to bring up Kobo Daishi, you know, and the Shingon Buddhism and its its real connection with Hinduism. And so it's brilliant that you talked about that. And, and also this the intertwined nature of Hinduism and Buddhism and how both of them have traveled together. That Buddhism, very rightly, as you said, you know, presupposes Hinduism. You know, most of the social practices were Hindu. In Southeast Asia and Thailand, too, right, it, there's so much influence of uh, the, the basic Vedic Dharma. I mean, yes. I've heard until recently, in fact, they've followed the traditional Dharma, dharma Shastras in, in, in terms of, you know, the model of kingship and, and you know, the, the rights of uh, actually yeah, anointing. Yeah, had the kingship, yeah. Rachid. Uh, they did it in a Hindu ceremony. Yeah, exactly. Right. So so, you know, that's that's really brilliant. And I, I think, in fact, it was Dr. Subhash Kak also wrote about this a little recently, right, about the, the traveling of, of Hinduism through Central Asia. And was, you know, in, in uh, I think the Khotan province right? That, that was up there in like Kashgar. And so it's, it's, it's really brilliant that most of these uh, connections have been lost. You know, and I think the traditional model was that oh, the Hinduism because of Brahmins sort of being more orthodox or inward looking, you know, the Buddhists who went out. But I, I think really, yes, it was indeed the Buddhists who went out, but they took so much of this overall Indian. I wouldn't even just say Hindu because again, we're differentiating the Hindu and Buddhist, but Indic right. uh, culture with them and spread it, you know, all the way to, uh, you know, the extreme of uh, East Asia. That's right. No, exactly. Exactly. I think this is an important thing to recover, too. And I, I find that, you know, so often in the Western world, people uh, want to contrast Hinduism and Buddhism. And very often it issues in a dialogue or a discourse where uh, Hinduism comes off very badly. It yeah. is a, it's the tradition that needed to be reformed by the Buddha. You know, everything was terrible. And then the Buddha came and it all got better. And, uh, you know, that's that's really projecting a whole lot of contemporary biases and misunderstandings back in where where they just did not exist. And I was uh, I occasionally dabble in the website you know quora.com you know people yeah. ask all kinds of questions and it can become a black hole of time. I I don't answer most of the questions I get, but every now and then I like to answer questions. And someone recently asked a question I didn't I haven't written anything yet, but you know is Buddhism uh, progressive or conservative? You know and and it's the question is such a projection of the contemporary world onto a, a just a very different time and place yeah. and culture. Yeah. So I'm gonna if I if I answer that it's gonna be this very siadvada answer that you know, <laughs> it, it's both it's neither it's uh, you know uh, all of these uh, things. Professor Long, uh, the one more question to add uh, you know I totally forgot about this but I've actually heard that the Shingons have actually kept a version of the Homa still alive. Yes, yes. In fact, they call it, they call it Goma. Uh, and uh, it's uh, yeah, and it's uh, it's performed in a it's a very sort of Japanese inflected Sanskrit, mm -hmm. uh, but it is a very it's quite recognizably a Vedic homa. Wow. And, and who do they do it to? Is it do do, do they do it to a deity or is it just like? Well, it it's an old tantric ritual, and in fact, uh, probably tantric Buddhists in India itself were, were doing the Homa in, in a tantric context. And so there's series of deities uh, that are, uh, again, a blend of deities that you can find in the Vedas with some deities that are distinctively Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And then you get to what would be regarded as the high deities, and those are the, those are the bodhisattvas and Buddhas of Mahayana Buddhism. And uh, so they... It's, it's connected with their practice of the mandala. So the, the mandala is really the central thing in Shingon. And the central deity there is the Vairochana, the, the, yeah, the universal consciousness, who for all, by all accounts sounds like Brahman. Uh, he's <laughs> yeah. a universal consciousness that we're all part of. 
And so there's this kind of ascent through the mandala, through the different stages. And the goma, the bija mantras used in the goma correspond to, they, they map onto the, the mandala. So it's, a, it's the mandala put into the form of a ritual. Okay. It's like the, you could say it's the spatial representation put into the form of a temporal set of actions. Which they do in Tantra very, very often, right? Exactly. So like, like right. the Shri Chakra and all that stuff is uh, in the Bindu and bring that all that in. So it's actually funny. Uh, Rajat and I spend a lot of time. We 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 talk about like um, the the nature of uh, now. Now I forgot. Now I just slipped my mind. I was about to uh, on the on the uh, on the topic you just brought in about about oh, actually this uh, how the Tatkata in in Buddhism is very much like Brahman in oh. in Vedanta. You know like. Uh, but how they, despite the fact that they say it's not, it's the, almost the same qualities, the same interaction. I mean, this same I, I think so metaphysical too. nature. Well, and, and here's where I get in trouble with Buddhism scholars. But I, I was very happy to see a book about this. I'm forgetting the name of the author. But there's a book called How Buddhism Found a Soul <laughs> in East Asia. And um, if you go back to Steve Collins' work on Theravada Buddhism, Selfless mm -hmm. Persons, he makes a very provocative statement that the Anatman doctrine, the Anatta doctrine, he calls it a linguistic taboo, that the Buddhists differentiated themselves from everyone else by not using the term self. And yeah. of course, there's a whole set of principled reasons why they don't use the term self. But once Buddhism gets out of India and its interlocutors are no longer Brahmins who are talking about Atman all the time, they become much more relaxed about it. And I, I've talked to Zen Buddhists who talk about how everything is one uh, in Satori, you're awakening to your own original nature, and they'll even say to your true self. And I'm like, self? Wow. You know, <laughs> you're not supposed to say that, right? But uh, it, it's so it, it, a lot of it come, came from this polemic that we've, we've referenced earlier in the conversation where you know, Buddhists were staking out a position where we're not you, right? We're not... Vedanta, we are, and of course, and you know, Vedanta, like you say, you know, it likes to have everything both ways. It likes to kind of absorb other traditions. I mean, Ramakrishna is a great example of that. Yeah. And uh, and I find you know a lot of contemporary Buddhists, uh, a lot of even a lot of Western Buddhists saying, no, we're different. We're not right. you guys. And I can respect that. I mean, you know, uh, on the Hindu side, we get accused of colonizing everybody all the time. We're absorbing all of your ideas and so on. But I don't think of it that way. I think of it again, to kind of reference some things we've said earlier, that, you know, there is an objective nature of reality. Yeah. If, if it involves this infinite ocean of consciousness that is our true nature, and if our ultimate aim in this life is to realize and manifest that, call it Brahman, call it Buddha nature, exactly. call, call it, you know, the, the, the mystical body of Christ, you know, you know, all these things will have different implications, and, uh, you know, call it the Tao. Uh, we don't want to just mush everything together indiscriminately, but if we, if our basic premise is that there is a real something, yeah. that all of these are attempts to describe, then I don't, I don't, I don't see it as being such a problem. I think it becomes, uh, well, two things. Of course, there's tribalism. You know, right. oh, we're different from you. So yeah, okay, we don't want to step on anyone's toes. And then, of course, in scholarship, it's like, well, you don't want to appear as if you know you don't know the difference between Vedanta and Buddhism. I mean, then, then you know, people don't take you seriously. But beyond all of that, I, you know, I really think we're we're all talking about just reality, and yeah. we're all we're all in it. We're all part of it, 
And again, this is really brought home for me in Japan because, uh, again, they're, they're away from all of the Indian arguments. If you go to a place called Nara, there's a, a old temple called Todaiji. It's massive. There's a giant Buddha in that temple. He's even bigger than the famous Daibutsu at Kamakura, who's, who's outdoors. And you really feel that you're in the presence of the infinite when you're in front of that, that deity. He's this massive, massive Buddha. He's Vairochana, again, the cosmic Buddha. And I tried repeatedly, and it was really a funny experiment. I probably took about 20 photos with my cell phone of this image trying to convey its immensity. And you just can't. It's, you have to be there and experience it and be in the presence of it because it's so beautifully proportioned that if you take a picture of it, unless there's a person standing near it, uh, it could be sitting on someone's shelf. I mean, it's just, you know, it's this nicely proportioned Buddha image. But if you're there, it's, it's, it's so massive and so immense. But, but I think that story you're, you're saying right now is perfect analogy of how we all talk about the world, the or or this universal entity. If you're not in it, all we get are these snapshots from these various locations that exactly. don't capture it. That don't <laughs> capture it. And I and I and I and by the end of that, I, I I was realizing this. I had this very profound realization. It's like, yeah, all these photos I'm trying to take are like our various attempts to grasp. Right. Know, yeah. Exactly. So um, I, I think we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, Ratchet did have some questions as to sure. uh, Donham that I think he yeah. wanted to ask. So please. Absolutely. Oh, no. There's nothing specific, uh, uh, Professor Long. I just want to understand, you know, how and why was Donham conceived? You know, what work you've done in the past, uh, where you are today, and, you know, where your mission is leading you in the future and how that's relevant to the broader community. Okay, very good. So... Uh, Donham is really the brainchild of, uh, to a very great extent, I would say, several people, but the main person I would give credit to is Rita Sharma, uh, who teaches at the Graduate Theological Union of Berkeley currently, and a uh, very good friend of mine. And uh, she developed Donham around the year 2000. I was not yet involved at that time, but I remember I, I was just getting started in the academy at that point. I finished my PhD in 2000. I'd gotten my job at Elizabethtown College. And I wanted to connect with like-minded scholars. And I was just browsing the web one day, and I came across the Donham website. And it was, you know, all these lights went off. I was like, ah, this is it. Because what Donham was in its origins and what it's continued to be is it's, it's an attempt to be a site where conversations kind of like the ones we're having or like are in my uh, reincarnation volume uh, by people who are both scholars with academic credentials and all of the training of the academy, but who also have some rooting in one of these traditions as a way of life, uh, can reflect on philosophical questions and theological and ethical kinds of questions. What Rita found, and I still see this to be the case, and again, this type of scholarship is fine and I think it, it's important and has a place, but overwhelmingly the scholarship on Hinduism is descriptive, um, and really uh, seems to operate from a premise that, you know, it's the tradition of those people, right? It's, it's, uh, there's this assumed gaze that is still very Western and uh, um, detached, uh, secular in its outlook and so on. And, uh, you know, if you go to the American Academy of Religion uh, website and you, you look at all the different uh, panels that occur at the AAR annual meeting, 
you'll find tons of things on Christian theology. They have panels dedicated to just one particular theologian, right? I mean, there's <coughs> that just looks at the work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? There's a there's a, a an Aquinas group, you know. You, there there are people who do. Uh, liberation theology, there are people who do feminist theology, there are people who do queer theology. Mm -hmm. And you look at that and you think, where's the Hindu equivalent of that? Where, where are the, where's the group dedicated to talking about Shankara and the relevance of Shankara's thought in the contemporary world? Where's the Ramanuja group that's not just, you know, looking at Ramanuja as an historical figure, but, you know, looking at uh, bringing Ramanuja's thought into conversation with contemporary trends? Where is that? So Donham is an attempt to be that. And another thing that Donham is, is trying to do is to extend the discourse. It's not a purely Hindu-based uh, organization, but it's, it's also been trying to advance this terminology of Dharma traditions, which the idea is that it, it's, it's really kind of a parallel or an analog with the idea of Abrahamic traditions, right? So this is something that's very well known in the Western world. You have Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They're historically related. They share a lot of terminology, a lot of geography, a lot of history. Well, so do Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism. Sikhism is a little controversial. I think uh, there have been Sikhs who've seen this as an attempt to try to, again, sort of colonize Sikhism or swallow up Sikhism. And, of course, Sikhism has a very deep connection with Abrahamic traditions as well. So maybe we can think of the Sikh tradition as kind of a bridge between these two families or groups. But uh, certainly Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism share vocabulary, assumptions, uh, practices, just, you know, a vast range. And, you know, the attempt to think through contemporary issues, ethical problems, philosophical issues, from a Hindu point of view, from a Buddhist point of view, from a Jain point of view, and, of course, being aware that there are many Hindu points of view and many Buddhist points of view and, and so on. But that kind of nuanced conversation that you see among the Christian theologians we want that as Hindu thinkers, as Buddhist thinkers, as Jain thinkers, as scholar practitioners. I think it was a little controversial in the beginning because I think there were some folks who tried to co-opt uh for their own particular agenda of how they thought the insider-outsider uh, discourse should happen. And we sort of tightened that up by basically insisting that if you're going to present, you need to have academic credentials, right? These are scholar practitioners, not... Uh, just a, a soapbox for anyone with an opinion. And as a result, it's really become very respectable so that, uh, you know, major scholars, again, like Jerry Larson, like Frank Clooney, uh, you know, a lot of people from across the academy uh, have now presented on a Donham panel or have attended uh, our events and meetings. I was very heavily involved at one point. I was the chair of the steering committee. I've stepped back a little just because I'm busy, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I still think the work is very important, but what I'm very happy to see is now there's a younger generation of scholars taking over, and we've got people on the steering committee now that you know just got their PhDs within the last five to ten years, Excellent. and they're advancing the conversation, and it's continuing. So uh, I'm in this funny position. I don't think of myself as that old, but I guess I'm one of the sort of elder statesmen now of Donham. I, you know, uh, I go to the meetings. I, we're, I'm going to be on a panel at the upcoming AR uh, at our Donham, I mean, we have one on uh, artificial intelligence, and you know how could that be conceptualized in uh, the Dharma traditions? So that's what we mean by. I mean, that's a that's certainly a contemporary issue. That's a cutting that's edge awesome. issue. Yeah, and I'm going to be uh, bringing in some strange material. I'm going to be uh, juxtaposing Star Trek and Marie Kondo 
in my uh, in my talk. So you know, if you're at the AR, come come and hear how the basically talking about how the question is something conscious often seems to boil down to are we, how are we allowed to treat that entity? Right. Uh, so uh, in other words, can we abuse it? Can we hurt it? Can we can we exploit it? Can we eat it? And uh, I'm going to be arguing that uh, both in Jainism and in also, if you look at Vedanta and, and uh, Buddhism to some extent, you have an ethos that asks, why should we treat anything, even what we think of as an inanimate object, uh, poorly, right? Isn't this just a manifestation of our own inner violence, our own kleshas? Uh, shouldn't we be treating, shouldn't we be cult cultivating the habit of showing respect even to the objects in the room? And then how much more will we respect the living beings that we encounter? And so that's a sort that's a short summary of my next Donham paper. Um, but uh, in terms of my future work, I've got a book uh, coming out very shortly that I'm very excited about on Hinduism in America. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a place where I found I've been able to talk about both the South Asian community and its fortunes and misfortunes, ups and downs, migrating into North America and how that has shaped Hindu practice, but also how people like myself, people like Ram Das Lam, people like George Harrison, you know, how did we get involved in all of this? And so the subtitle is A Convergence of Worlds. So Hinduism in America, A Convergence of Worlds, the coming together of the Hindu diaspora community with um, non-Indians who are just drawn to all of this. And at the recommendation of one of the reviewers of the manuscript, I'm also uh, I'm rewriting some of it now to pay more attention to the young generation of Hindus growing up in America, uh, who you know have grown up here. Uh, they're of Indian descent. Uh, they are they aren't from the sort of seeker community like people like me, but they are also aren't the people who grew up in India and my and they have their own. Yeah, <laughs> so I want to have the perspective of. You know, in fact, I should probably interview you for uh, for this book uh, because. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really am interested in because uh, in, uh, th this was something I think I neglected in, in what I developed because like I mean I know a lot of folks you know your age and your generation and uh, I think uh, that's I mean that's the future right that's yeah. that's what's coming next and and I think. Uh, it's something I want to. So these so are three worlds, really. Uh, your generation, your parents' generation, and then strange like me, yeah. So and because uh, all of it is part. So like it, it's interesting. I mean, I have gone to uh, Hindu temples and seen the discourse being given by a swami in an orange robe who's a white guy. Yeah. And uh, and that that's who the kids are learning from, and that's you know. And so uh, it it is not exclusive to any one. Uh, ethnic group, and yet is it's also inescapably Indian, and right. that also is part of the reality that needs to be, you know, understood. So, so that's that's my next, and then I've got an introduction to Indian philosophy that is in the pipeline too. So, Excellent. several things going on. Well, if people want to reach out to you, uh, Professor Long, how do they get in touch with you? Probably the easiest way is email, uh, and I can give my address. Uh, it's a uh, well, you have my email address too. I I don't know if it'll be posted with the uh, yeah. I'll probably I'll put it out. But it's my last name Long J D. Uh, so for you know Jeffrey David Long. So Long J D at etown e t o w n dot edu. That's my Elizabethtown College address. Easiest way to get in touch with me. And uh, if I don't reply, it's probably because it got bounced by our college server. But I I try to reply to everyone. Do you have um, Twitter? Any any of that stuff? 
I do Twitter and Facebook. Uh, in fact, we initially connected through Facebook. Yeah. Uh, I've pulled back from social media a bit just because of all the polarization we talked sure. about earlier. So now I pretty much go on and wish people happy birthdays and announce my next, you know, article or book coming out, and that's that's about it. But uh, but I am uh, I can be connected with through Twitter and Facebook also. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time, uh, Professor Long. I know it's been a long conversation, but we I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I think we're I have. Well, absolutely. Um, and thank you for all your knowledge and hard work and uh, uh, bringing, uh, uh, you know, all the good I mean, Diana to, to people that don't have it. So well, very much thank you so much, sir. You're very kind. I, I'm doing all this because I learn more every time I have a conversation like this, every time I engage with someone. I'm learning. This is part of my sadhana. So I, I'm grateful to you. Thank you. So uh, we will be posting this very short next week. But uh, thank you for your time. And we'll speak again. Okay, thank you so All much. Right. All right, bye. thank you.